Carnivorous couch, shit happens once a week It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak Carnivorous couch With Brady and Rob Hey everybody, hey everybody, hey everybody, and welcome to another edition of Carnivorous Couch. That was our acapella garage door choir, and it was not near as satisfying as the real. You know what? They've got heart, door. though. I felt satisfied. I could hear it. I, I felt satisfied. I think they're going to win the championship into that, and save uh, the rumble youth of center. The, of the garage door. It was, it was beautiful. All right, so this week we covered... <laughs> The 1995 <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger blood splatter snuff film Before Sunrise. Uh, everything about that was true except for everything but the words Before Sunrise. 95 is true. It is in 1995. 95 was a horrible year. Let's introduce all around. This is Carnivorous Couch, the spoiler full podcast where we discuss a film a week from two film geeks, sometimes more, in which case this week there's more. Because there's me, Rob, and this other dude. Brady Larson. And uh, my friend from junior high. Ross Marie. And uh, my friend from junior high. Benjamin Stein. Actually, I think I didn't know Ben until high school, but he was my friend from junior high's friend from junior high. No, I think it was actually college. Because I was friends no, with... Ethan no, I was you. friends with Ethan, but I didn't know you in high school. And then I met Mandy... At uh, at college orientation. Yeah, but I met you before you met me, but just in passing. Just like we didn't hang out, but like I met you at a party or some shit. Feels like a lifetime ago. It's kind of like the theme of this movie. I mean, it was. my lifetime is thirty and here years, we are. and this was thirty years. Oh wait, no, that's not. And this film was eighteen years ago. Interesting. It almost another lifetime. Mm-hmm. Quite right. Well, for at least a, a lifetime, for at least uh, a small segment of uh, uh, legally. Uh, realized minorities who are no longer minorities because they're adults now. That should have been more eloquent, but it's this beer. Sunrise, sunset. Brady, would you care to introduce the film? Uh, The film... Okay, the film is Richard Linklater's uh, 1995... No. Wait. Yes. 95. 95 95 film. Before Sunrise. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Okay, so it's it's Linklater's Before Sunrise from 95, the mm. first in his now trilogy, uh, the Before Trilogy, mm. followed by Before Sunset and Before Midnight, uh, each of them nine years apart. And so this is the opening of that. It's uh, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, and they're essentially the only two uh, professional actors in the thing. So as for always, we start with plot synopsis. I think we all delegated second and thirded and then voted eyes to vote. Ben, do the plot synopsis because he's seen the movie and then he didn't realize what it entailed. And now he does and now he's scared. Absolutely. No, I'm not scared. I, I, I know exactly what happened in this movie. Uh, there were characters on the screen and they were talking. Mm. And they continued to have conversations. And they revealed things about their inner selves and did so through their own personality flaws mm. and arrived at a wonderful conclusion. Mm. Which is the most vague way possible of describing this movie. What rea- what actually happened, as a plot summary, is that we open on a train, and the train mm-hmm. is on its way to Vienna, and uh, 
we're introduced to our main characters, Jesse, played by Ethan Hawke, and uh, uh, what's it, Celine? Celine. Celine. Yeah. Celine, played by Julie Delpy. And they're both young, attractive, young 20-somethings uh, on the train heading in. And she's a, a French, I guess, student? Yeah. On her way back to Paris, where she lives. And Ethan Hawke is uh, a young American traveling through Europe on a Eurorail pass. And uh, we'll find out later why he's traveling around Europe without much of a uh, an itinerary. But anyways, he's on his way into Vienna. He's about to fly back to the States. And uh, they strike up a conversation. And uh, they have a very good conversation. And uh, I'm sure we'll talk about you know, their actual contents of it. Um, but at the end of this, they've sort of established some sort of rapport with each other, some sort of connection. And uh, sort of in a very forward move, uh, Jesse asks her to step off the train with him, spend the night walking around the streets of Vienna um, as that that what-if chance of that one guy who might have gotten away, why don't you just get off the train and go around Vienna with him on a romantic night? So, so she does in in a very cute fashion. Um, and the rest of the movie, they basically are walking around Vienna and they're uh, running into miscellaneous characters. There's a, a sort of a palm reader, mystic woman in a square that they run into. There's a, a poet they find. They go into a, a bar and they play pinball and see a singer-songwriter on, uh, you know, on the stage. And, uh, and all the while, they're sort of, they're falling in love. And you know, maybe they fell in love when they first met or maybe that's developing along the go. We can we can talk about this. Um, but by the end of the film, they reach this point where they realize that their one evening together is coming to an end. And uh, the basic the basic idea is that they're they're agreeing to to make this sort of a, a self-contained evening, like no no bullshit, no strings attached, no uh, clinging to their outer selves. They're just going to live this night for its night. And as they reach the end of the night. Uh, they've, they've developed such a strong bond and they have fallen completely head, and head over shoulders in love with each other that they, they're not sure what to do and they eventually decide that they're going to they're gonna try and meet up again six months later in a very sort of frectic, uh, hectic and frantic sort of planning and then, then they leave and they're both sort of dumbstruck by this uh, remarkably impactful evening that they had with each other. Mm. And that, that's basically the... the, the the arc of the movie it's a lot of conversation it's phenomenal acting both in sort of uh the way they talk and the dialogue that they have presented but also their their body language with each other and uh, i i love this movie i think it's fantastic and uh, i can't wait to talk we'll about get it into guys. how we like it in a, that segment that's titled that but ross do you agree that did, this is did, what transpired during the course of the film did, did i miss anything like major? that's what i'm asking ross um there was a, a little they had a little Flirt on the on a gondola ride, which was pretty cool on a on a boat. Actually, oh yeah, they they kissed a on a Ferris wheel. That was what it was, a Ferris wheel. And they may or may not have hooked up in the park, at the end. Except I, I know the answer, but I guess we don't. But yet. we don't. We don't know yet. the well, answer. Well, I mean, okay. Well, I mean, it, this yet. is a spoiler full podcast, but only for this movie. Only for this movie. We're not yeah. like spoiling yeah. the the other before movies. Yeah. Exactly. No, we can't. We can't go there. No, we can't. We would like. May to. or may not. May or may not, and uh, yeah, really, really good movie. I, I guess we'll get into that later. Yeah, we'll get into that. What about? Are we going to get into it now? Can we talk? Start talking? I mean, maybe about that's the next like place to go. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, no, that's our next segment, which is called. Hey, hey, hey! How do we like it? Brady, 
How did you like this film? Um, how do I like it? It's the weakest of the before series, and it is a, a masterpiece. I, I love it. I you love throw that word around it. a lot. <laughs> you you use it too sparingly, as if there is this finite pool of masterpieces, and we can only give so many. Well, there can the only title. be so many masters because if everybody's a master, well then. No, no, it's not. It's, what a master think, is it's someone domination. who's better than pretty much everyone else, except for other people who are just as good as them, who are also masters. No, but. Hmm. I mean, like, I'm with you. I'm also hesitant to bestow the title of greatness too easily upon I things. I would argue against that notion. You seem very frequent to dis- bestow <laughs> greatness upon films. Maybe it's because we only watch good films. And we yeah, don't we've, we've mostly, we haven't, the, the shittiest film we've seen, like, in terms of what I think is Ooh, what the is worst, the shittiest film, pray tell me? Is probably The Holy Mountain, which is a very, very interesting movie. What's that about? I don't know. I think it might be on one of the dreams. other podcasts. It's one of the Wait, ones that I haven't watched, listened to yet. You watch a movie it's about, about Cox and fortune telling and well, no, I, mean, I agree, I agree oh with God. Brady. Like you, you can't limit the number of masterpieces. If it's legitimately good enough to be a masterpiece, then call it a masterpiece. Yeah. But you can't be too liberal with your praise. I mean, if if everything is, if every movie you see is an A or A minus, then hmm. what's the difference between an A or an A minus? Like you got to. It's only an A if it's a really, really great movie. And if it's mm. just a merely good movie, then you should put it at a B or a B plus. I'm going to play devil's advocate. I, I get that, that this is a really feel-good movie for me on a personal level. I don't necessarily know about like all the rest of it. We'll talk about that in, in a minute, I'm sure. But, but in terms of how I left feeling after it was over, I left feeling really, really good. Like yeah. riding the wave. Yeah, I feel like the, one of the things I didn't, I didn't put out in the plot summary is that uh, sort of the general character of our, of our two main characters. Um, so please, please interrupt me if I'm, if I'm characterizing these guys the wrong way. But so Jesse, Ethan Hawke's character, he is a very uh, cynical, not very cynical, but definitely has a very cynical edge to how he, he approaches life. I mean, part of that is because his original plan, as we find out towards the end of the movie is that, uh, his girlfriend who he'd been having a long distance relationship with, and she, had been living in Madrid, and she comes out, and he, he flies to Madrid to spend time with her and spend the summer with her, yeah. and she dumps him because she doesn't want to be with him, and mm-hmm. he's he's heartbroken, and he's just traveling through Europe through, through Europe on on his on his uh, Eurorail tra- pass, and as you find out through the film, uh, his relationship with his parents is very cynical. He, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the his parents didn't love each other. Mm. And they divorced as soon as the kids were old enough to be past their like prime years. And so he has this very cynical nature view of love and uh, how people are should relate to each other. And then he always in mo- a lot of his conversations, he slips in these little like cynical notes. Mm. Um, he tells at one point he tells a story about uh, his friend or someone. Uh, somebody knows who yeah. is watching his like son be born yeah. and as he sees the newborn the uh, you know the, the child that was just given life and living outside of mom and all he can picture is that child's death and so he's so cynical that he just takes the uber long view on things and just jumps to the end where everything dies and so he has a yeah. very cynical view towards things um, yet throughout the movie he can't help himself but he falls in love yeah. And it's this very like flowery romantic 
kind of love that he comes into. Meanwhile, Julie Delpy's character, Celine, um, she is similarly jaded, but she she isn't cynical like like he, like, like Jesse. She, is. She's quite optimistic, isn't she? Yeah, but she's just uh, she's jaded and she's been hurt by mm. past relationships, um, and uh, she she's scared of actually sort of opening herself up because she feels like if she does open herself up, she's going to get hurt because she's been hurt before and there's ugliness in the world. Mm. But she does have this like beautiful soul that wants to experience things that she's just, she's just jaded. She's hesitant so, a little bit. One of my favorite like mini moments in this movie <laughs> is uh, at the very beginning of the movie, uh, the moment when he asked her to get off the train with her, mm. with, with him. And she like hesitates for the second. And if you look at her eyes, she's like, freaking out in her eyes she's like oh, i'm so scared but then she says yes Peter called go. me on it though yeah i mean like, one, like one, I, i've been flirting with this guy the whole time thinking it was nothing and now dude called me on it yeah exactly i mean one of the mm. things i like about the relationship in the movie is that they're always calling each other on their bullshit and it makes for a very good introspective deep conversation but i like how both of these characters in their own different ways are completely adverse to the notion of love one's cynical, one's jaded, they've been hurt, they, they don't want to believe that something beautiful like real love can exist. Mm. And despite their general proclivities, they're drawn to each other, they can't help it, they're in love, and by the end of the movie, they're just head over heels crazy for each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that's like a very interesting arc as it plays out, because it, it's gradual and it's subtle and it's just really well done. In, in, in yeah, I, I, I mostly agree. Uh, I mean, I, well, I wouldn't say that Celine is too jaded. Wait, I think we're getting a little far away from the hey, hey, hey the question. Yeah, well, since Ben just did that, uh, hey, 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 uh, what's uh, your letter grade? My letter grade? Yeah. Um, I give it. I agree with Brady. I'm going to give it a solid A because for what Gosh. this movie is, it's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, like you go into this movie knowing it's a character piece. You know, going into it, that it's going to be some sort of uh, romantic love story tale, and I think they handle it in as like realistic and mature manner possible, with great dialogue and great acting. And for what it's doing, it's 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 absolutely it's flawless in my in my opinion. I think it's it's a it's a phenomenal movie. So a. All right, Brady, give us your diatribe to go along with your grade. Well, I mean, I we didn't quite get that from you. I I think it'll come out like more as we talk about like the various features of it but yeah no no i i absolutely think it's an a if i have to think of something and this is part of a really great movie i think is if you can get different things out of it upon each viewing but something that stuck out to me uh, is that how self-contained each scene is like for instance there's a really powerful scene and, and by the way like there's this this quote among film nerds which is that you know a great movie most of the time is just a few really great scenes like if you can get that much if you can actually get a few standout moments together and the rest is middling that's still a masterpiece movie that's still a great movie and so what i like There's is it has again. that's that's a very interesting point though i i like the idea that it's, that it's just peak pictures in your head that have burned onto your brain to the point where you can't get them out of your head and that's a masterpiece i think that's pretty cool yeah yeah and i like you know each scene should be taken for its own potency so one thing i think is what, what's, that, what's that potency smell like, if you don't mind me asking? It smells like Vienna. 
smells like Wiener Schnitzel. Suck a little ripe. Suck le bleu. No, okay, okay, getting back to it. What I like is... I think each scene is not only self-contained in terms Thank of God. the tension and the stakes Word. of what's going on, but also the writing really supports it. And one example is the very powerful scene where we've been, for the first half of the movie, which is lovely and has great stuff. This is where Brady they, gets really passionate. They kind of put off what we always know is the case, but we even kind of forget, or I did, um, that you know there's this uh, sense of transience that everything's going to end. There's an expiration date to things. And for the first half of the movie, the movie's not about that. And suddenly they have this scene on the boat where they're having dinner and uh, or they're having a drink on a boat on the river. And so the thrust of that scene is finally confronting that this night isn't going to last. And they make a decision to say, well, yeah, this will be in, uh, transient. Like, we'll let this go after this night. No more. But they don't even get to that till midway through the scene. And the first thing they talk about is what Ben t- said, which is. Mm. Ethan Hawke talking about his friend looking at his child being born, but being struck by the fact that one day this child will die, that everything has its finality, mm-hmm. everything is finite and has an expiration date. You know, I want to I want to jump Very in on this because I think that's a it's a really interesting scene you bring up because um, I think this is I agree with everything you just said, but it, to me it also reflects the fact that they're both too scared of what they both realize his love. They mm. both realize they're falling in love with each other. They both realize that this night has a special impact on both of them. Mm. And they're both sort of out of their shell. I mean, they're in a new city. They're w- around no one that they know. It's a completely unfamiliar situation mm. and, and, and habitat that they're in. Um, so they can't help but just drop all of their normal bullshit and just all of their other hangups, their cynical hangups, their jaded hangups. Yeah. And they just, they're falling in love with each other. But even though they're recognizing this, even though they're affirming it in each other, mm. they're still too scared to actually move that love forward. They're like, okay, well, we can love each other, but like just for tonight, like we won't <laughs> be on the hook for like loving each other on days after this. And I, I mean, I, I just think that's interesting that like at that point in the movie, they're still like too scared. Well, yeah, it's even towards the end, though, they do the whole thing where like once they finally drop their guard completely, then they go like, well, no, it's not even before they drop their guard completely. That's incorrect. Uh, it's uh, that point in time where they say, like, oh, real world, because he's, like, talking about his dog. And it's like, well, I guess I got to get back, and I got to call my friend, well, and I got to talk to Well, that was, like, in the in the morning. That was, like, yeah. at the very... Yeah, that no, was, like, no, the, no, the no it's way it. later than what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. But, like, even at that point in time, they haven't dropped their guard completely. It's not until they finally go, like... No, no, I want to see you again. Okay, how about in, like, five years? Five years? Uh, no, how about in a year? A year? No, how about in six months? Like, that's when well, yeah, they but finally like the last, their That's, like the, the last, like, the last moments. That's, like, the last, like, 30 seconds before she has to get on the yeah. train. What I'm saying is that the entire film, like, up until the very, 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 very end, and, and probably even past then, right? And they kind of lead to that with them sitting silently contemplating and thinking and being smiley about the other one and so forth and so on. Um, but until the very, very, very end or possibly past the plot of the movie entirely, they haven't totally let their guard down. Yeah. I, I disagree emotionally, but I think like their ability, like obviously like one of the nice things about this movie is we're dealing with very smart people. Like they're actually a pleasure to listen to like in the midst of them falling in love. They're also, I think, interesting characters. I think what remains isn't their emotional guard, but they, because they make everything so poetic, 
they put a poetic sheen that helps them grasp this idea. They swallow the story for themselves of, well, we're going to part. Like, that's fine. Say goodbye now. And, it, and it's beautiful. And, it, you know, the idea of uh, transience is a big part of this movie. And death is a big part of this movie, too. But then when the moment comes, like, all that poetic bluster just wilts. Because at the end, saying goodbye isn't some poetic conceit. It's, it's really saying goodbye. And maybe never uh, seeing well, the person frantic. again. I'd like to... I'd like to I believe Ross would like to say something. I like to Go play, ahead, Ross. I like to play devil's advocate on this. Um, something really interesting that, that Ben mentioned about how when they find this love, it's new for the first time. It's not something that they've ever experienced before, even though they've they've been in love before. So they're kind of they're they're taken aback by that and they're processing it. And they're processing it and all the dialogue has this really brilliant banter as that Brady pointed to. Mm. Starts with these very little moments that are that are, you know, very very whimsical things that just they they come upon in passing mm -hmm. and then and then uh -huh. then they're always talking about something else the the moment before the the beat before five minutes before ten minutes before things that are still itching them and all these things move through to the next moment and the next moment and the next moment so as their conversation seems to be um seems to be getting easier in their tone of voice and their intonation and their in their in their tonality the stakes keep getting higher and higher, and the steps that they have to take to get to the next place keep getting higher and higher and higher. And I think that, that was really interesting because they really are just riding a wave. I mean, the way that the dialogue is written, the way that they handle the dialogue, the way their chemistry is, they're, they're riding this wave, and they can't get off it, and they know that. They're doing everything they can, and that's what makes it so, for me personally, made it really, really fascinating to watch because it felt like a real a real relationship as well. yeah no it's the it's very like similitude people, is, yeah and you know like when it first came out i for some reason i wanted to say like i love it but put a caveat on it that okay i love it but like maybe the direction is slight but what i love is that the relationship is realistic and at the same time as i revisit over the years the cinematography is really poetic like it actually has a real sense of place I love the scenes where they're playing pinball and you see the kind of flippers getting knocked about. Also, Julie Delpy is the sexiest pinball player ever. She, <laughs> she crotch thrusts the pinball machine every time she loses. Second that. All third. <laughs> but just so like the good. whole movie, I, she's just really sexy. I just want to say that. Like, like wow. I mean, I'm not like, I'm not into Ethan Hawke, but hmm. if I were into someone like Ethan Hawke, I'd be into him in this movie because they're both just like very. Uh, attractive character. He looks. He's got a little bit of a James Dean thing going on in this movie, and uh, yeah, they both they both are very much so. But I think one of the things that, that's fun about it is that like both of the characters, sort of incongruous with the other stuff we've talked about, is like they have a certain amount of armor on them and their mm. personality. Mm. But because of the sort of spiral of their connection, where they're like falling more and more with each other, like as the movie goes on, you can see more of their vulnerability come out, mm. and like. It, it, at least for me personally, like when you can see that vulnerability, like that's attractive and sexy. You know, when you see mm. uh, not someone's pretenses, but the actual person. Yeah. Um, and the fact that the entire movie they're like calling each other on all of their bullshit, like it sort of brings out <laughs> a lot of that. That well, that, it's that, that level of comfort stuff. that they seem to have with each yeah. other. That's yeah. Like yeah. That yeah. it's the thing. I mean, it's kind of like. Oh, I'm sorry about that, Brady. Oh, uh, Rob no, just no, no, no. Rob just dipped Brady's mic and do his. Uh, his face and crotch. now he's cleaning it crotch out. Face. Yeah, wow. his face is bloody and crotchy. Uh, can I'm, I? Can I'm, I uh, I'm petting Brady. Can I interject and, and and push forward a new uh, topic for us all? 
Well, hold on one well, second. Well, no, I mean, like, like actually, generally. Oh, well, actually, first, no, I, though, I, no. we need you Ross's thoughts. grades. Order, order, as, order in the court. Oh, we need the rest of the grades. Order, we still need two grades. Order in the court. As the judiciary don't, person, don't. yes. Thank you. I was going to go. All right, Ross. Ross. Can I, I get a grade from you, a letter grade? Oh, uh, it's an, I give it an A. Come on. Seriously, Christopher Walken, what are you doing? He's tap dancing on my face. He's so happy about this movie about young love that can spawn and grow in a place people never been before i loved at least, it at least those two at least <laughs> those <laughs> two people. people i believe other people i'd been living in well that was <laughs> well put that. christopher <laughs> <laughs> i appreciate I like that all right rob let's let's up. hear your take give Sir. us your grade I, i'm gonna give this movie a b plus and and there's a very good reason I'm going to give it a B plus is because I haven't had the time to sit with this and ruminate over this that I need to. I mean, I did take us all out on a walk to our playground Word. in order for epic. me to kind of give me Although, uh, I mean, like, time to ruminate, and it still wasn't enough. And we were, well, Rob, this so is your first time viewing the movie. We've all yes, seen it exactly. before this. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. What I'm saying is, you guys have all seen this, you have time to ruminate, and you have time to go like, no, no, that's a fucking good movie, and I'm like, there's a lot in this movie. Yeah. Rob, you're um, so smart. I should never, never interrupt you again. <laughs> so never, I'll never interrupt. No, Rob, you. I actually dig your process because I don't want to interrupt Brady either. Rob likes to let the movie kind of age like wine a bit before he can bestow the mighty A. I respect yeah, that I can't, very, I can't very, give very, very, I think, very much. I think I'm just giving it a B plus because, like, well, okay, very few movies that I just have watched get a B plus. To right? be, most of them yeah. they get a C. <laughs> you be, old crutchety To, to be on your thing. side with this Rob I, I, I do the same thing now I usually take like two or three weeks Before I've even decided what the grade is that I'm going to choose I like right. making snap decisions and sticking by them Despite all contrary evidence I just see, accept that they change minute to minute I could go change a grade on like Something I saw ten years ago right now Yeah, Make right. the grade but I let the grade change Because it's all relative so is it relative to you being smarter? Or is it relative to you being dumber? Or is it relative to the movies you watch? No, it's it's stuff ages. No, that's the great thing. Like think about the Big Lebowski. Like basically critically shrugged off in its time. Now it's the only Coen Brothers movie to make the sight and sound top two fifty. Only one. It's the only one. Fargo missed and No Country missed. And this is two why movies love... that I technically prefer to Big Lebowski. But this is Big why Lebowski we love movies, right? Because we get to talk about. Things in our lives. Yeah. Are so I think we have A. I'm holding a. a beverage here. A. I'm pointing to Brady, then Ross, then Ben, and then we have B plus. So I mean, pretty good over, score overall. I mean, like we got score. four highly critical movie people here, and that's what that is. But you yeah. know what? Before we discuss anything further, I know we got a bunch of talking points to go on to, but uh, I want to go ahead and uh, do our next topic, which is the understudy. All right. Yeah. So let's uh, dip away to that real quick, and then we'll come back right after this. We're so sorry we couldn't get the actors to do the scene from this screenplay, but we've got two understudies, and to be honest, they're probably more famous anyway. So try to catch the actors, try to guess the movies, tweet us at C-A-R-N-Y couch. This game called Understudy is happening, happening, happening right now. Hi, boys. We almost gave up on you. Oh, are we late? There are no clocks in this town. Well, no harm done. This is Lisa. I'm sorry. I never got your name. I'm Mike, and this is my friend, Little Down Trent. 
Stop. Ladies, don't you double down on 11. Always. No matter what, like splitting aces. Well. Hello, Lisa. I'm Trent. What a lovely makeup job. Lisa works at the MGM Grand. I'm a Dorothy. Oh, uh, a Dorothy. Well, uh, we're not in uh, Kansas anymore, eh? Uh, and uh, what do you guys do? I'm a comedian. Do you ever perform out there? I'd love to see you. Uh, no. You, you should. A lot of comics play in Vegas. Uh, I'm afraid it's not that easy. Well, why not? Uh, they're different circuits. Uh, it's hard to explain. Uh, you, you wouldn't understand. <laughs> Who's your booking agent? Oh, uh, you know about booking agent. I uh, don't uh, actually have it with Coast Agent. Uh, at the yet. <laughs> well, well, who represents you uh, back east? Actually, it, it's funny you. Uh, I'm, I'm actually uh, uh, I'm between. You know. What, what do you do, Trent? I'm a producer. Whoa! Ooh. Oh! Ah! <laughs> oh. Listen, I'm not really allowed to drink here. We should go someplace else. How's my place? Sounds good to me. Yeah. Yeah. That was uncertain. Tweet us your answer at C A R N Y Couch. Hey, everybody, hey, everybody, we're back. That was an excellent, excellent edition of Understudy. And now we're going to go ahead and do our newest segment, which is called. What is this movie about? Mm. Or maybe it's called. What the fuck is this movie mm. about? Or maybe it's called. What is this movie about? Maybe it's called something that doesn't have a hum in the background. What is this movie about? That was pretty good. What is this movie about, Brady? What is this movie about, Brady? Brady? <laughs> What's it all about? Uh, well, let's see. I mean, I think what makes this such a good movie is that it's, it's obviously got a simple through line. The plot itself is obviously, like, unbelievably simple, which I think is its credit. It's about... Uh, you know, this love story, it's about love itself. And that may sound cliched, but I, I'm a big fan of the poetic idea of variations on a theme. So I think this is an excellent look into just love itself. Beyond that, though, I think there are two other, at least, big themes that are crucial throughout this film and throughout the series. Hmm. One is uh, time and impermanence. And leading right into that, the uh, third is death. It, it's really a movie about love and death, I think, and the fact that things die and what love means, what emotional connection, human connection means in the face of impermanence. On that topic, I think there's an outtake from this film where they do sleep with each other, and it's in Waking Life, but it's um, it's animated. Oh, well, that's just a separate thing, but uh, yeah, that Waking Life, we do see those characters, but it's a dream. Well, okay, I, I put this right. question to, to you guys about this sort of, like, what what is this movie about? Like, what does this mean? Like, why even go through the purpose of having this story? Because we've obviously got two very well-realized characters. We love these characters. They're, when you say well-realized, they don't know who they are yet. That That's part of their charm, right? I feel like charm, the, right? the, the character as uh, conceived by the writer and, and the actors and the director and how they... they 
throw it all together, that these are, are fully formed three-dimensional human beings with complex emotions. Okay, yeah, but, yeah. But in otherwise, the critical analysis sense. In yes. the critical analysis sense, they're well-formed characters. And they're flawed, but there's something... But they're not, like, tragically flawed. Mm. And, and they go through this, this journey, like, as we've talked about before, how, like, sort of their natures are against the notion of love, yet they fall in love. Mm. And if you look at them... Mm. Sorry, it's really By funny. Themselves. Every time Ross goes, hmm, because I'm wearing headphones, so I can hear everything you guys do, including every breath you take. Mm. And every move you make. Anyway, um, mm. Ben. That's very interesting. Um, anyways, so th the idea is that you can look at these characters in isolation and be like, what, what journey is Jesse on? from his cynical self to his dopey and love self. What what journey is, is Celine on from her from her jaded, scared self to her in love self? Like you can talk about those things by themselves. But what really what is this movie about? Like why even put these guys on this journey? Like like they obviously come together and and there's a there's a scene that we we've talked about off air about um where they almost get into their first fight. Yeah. And they're kind of like starting to jabber at each other. And they, they, they talk about like, you know, what will, you know, years down the line, what will annoy each other about the other person, Great that scene. kind of thing. And, and like, there's a lot of this stuff about like the nature of love. And so what is the point of putting these characters through this, this magical, true love at first sight kind of thing, only to split them up at the end with a, you know, optimistic, but, vague conclusion of whether or not they're actually going to get together sometime in the future. Well, so, I mean, so that's the question. Like, why even put them on this journey? What about the journey that Jesse and Selena are on that gives this, like, like, like in, why even write the movie? In my limited marinade of this narrative, so I've only been gestating here in this pool of balsamic vinaigrette and other spices and herbs. You know, Ro the first Robert thoughts are often the purest Rob thoughts. Rob means he's been drinking beer. I think you should just, just spout the wisdom. For so long. Spout it. Herbs and spices. The way I look at it is like, this is a relationship in a microcosm. It is a relationship that happened, goes through all its uh, anticipations in one day, and then at the end the people decide, hey, I still want to be with you. Like, even if this life or this world or whatever we've created between us is over. Actually, can I say something on that? Or, or Yeah, go ahead. No, Brady, okay. you're not a part of the podcast. <laughs> you can't talk. Hey, I, I've been allowed within 200 feet, and I can shout pretty loud. Uh, uh, that is the only way I end up on this thing. Dun, dun. Sons of bitches. <laughs> um, Motherfucker. No, because I, I actually I like what, Rob, you're saying about microcosm, because I think Something that you see in Waking Life and that I think Linklater himself is very interested in, and, and this fits in with the idea of love linked with time, linked with death. Linked with Linklater. Linked with Linklater. Link, Linklater. Um, is, uh, Stop talking about Zelda. <laughs> is this idea of, like, of, of microcosms in a sense, because Linklater's view on time and death and all of that, eternity, whatever you want to call it, is that there is no real time. Every moment is kind of happening. Like there's no series of times. It's just everything. Uh, and we even Ross pointed this out and I'd never seen this before when we're in the record store, which is a great mm -hmm. scene. Wait, you've never seen Ross point something out before. 
<laughs> I have a really big nose, in case any of you are wondering. So I, I yeah, tend to everywhere point, he looks, points something. He out tends to be pointing things out most. We see a, a Sinatra album, like two yeah, yeah. and the title. Oh yeah, we pointed like, this out. The hour is now, or something like that. Yeah, the, the, hour t- is now. the time is now. And so yeah, no, like hour is now. Now's now. the time. I think time is now. The movie, because it's about love, but love clashing with time and death. Is kind of about microcosm. Did you say that again, Brady? Just because I was, I was. Oh yeah, I was singing over it. I'm sorry. <laughs> it sounded, it sounded Lord, good. Lord, I apologize. Okay, okay. Let's let's go again. This time's gonna be even better. The hours now. Because the hours. Okay. Uh, because. In the record <laughs> store, they say uh, they say the hours now by a Frank Sinatra album. Right? Yeah. Okay. So, I think this movie. It's in the foreground of a shot. Holy fuck. Okay. Um, because the movie is about how love interacts with time and death. I think microcosms are a big part of it. Hmm. And, I, and I think it could even beg the question, and it, I'm happy it doesn't underline this, because it's just there for the taking if you want it, and I think this movie has a lot of moments like that. Uh, I think it's an uh, there is an idea of, well, would this be a worthwhile thing if it were just one day? And that's what the characters wrestle with. Hmm. But at the same time, there's also this... Uh, Linklater, I'm sorry, I'm going on a huge tangent, Please. but in Waking yeah. Life, Linklater says something very interesting about the idea of God and heaven. What does he say? And he says that life, you know, as something that is a prelude to heaven, is this series of saying no to God over and over, of just of putting off, like, eternity, of putting off, like, I'm not ready for that yet. Speak and I almost ready. feel like before sunrise, how it deals with love is kind of an inverse of that, Speak because these movies are a series or at least this one is a series of kind of saying no to we don't want to say goodbye yet like no it's we know that things end but not yet not yet not yet you know uh, wow. upon that, that the theme of intransigence um we talked to there, there there was a scene early in the movie where um they like very recently gotten off the train and they were on the bus and they're like head along the bus and they start asking each other like um direct questions and in that scene, they talk about direct questions, meaning they can't lie. Yes. Or well, it's like truth. They can't truth lie or truth. They, they yeah. Play. Like what? What was your first sexual thoughts? What was the first time you were in love? Blah blah blah. They blah. play a game around it, right? Yeah, you know, lovey bullshit like that. Um, anyways, so in this, uh, uh, Jesse brings up the topic of reincarnation and how if you look at the last fifty thousand years or so. The population of the Earth has gone from like 200,000 to 2 million to, you know, some odd billion that we've got today. And that in this time, like, if we really do believe in this sense that the soul endures and jumps from person to person, reincarnation style, that uh, we only have like fractions of a soul. We have like one five thousandths of a soul. Like, mm-hmm. like we're not real people. Like we're maybe not, maybe not, not that we're real people. I, w- I don't want to say that, but that um, maybe our lives are these singular events i'm not saying he, he's suggesting that reincarnation is like a false theory but that even if it is true uh the moments that we have if you are living all of these lives that maybe each moment of those lives has its own special meaning and value and that in that microcosm amidst the vastness of human existence uh this moment has some meaning for them do things I don't understand how that statement equates to what you just said. Which I statement? might have gone off on a tangent. I, I think. I and I, the second thing is, if there are fewer souls because there's more people or we're splitting more souls, mm-hmm. that's a really Earth-centric kind of view, isn't it? Well, 
I actually have. Earth is not the center of the universe. There's a lot of universe, and therefore. I'd, I'd like to pick. Well, I mean, like, I mean, if you're talking about the Earth as the center of the universe, isn't that in some sense talking about Earth as a microcosm? Well, it's talking about Earth being. We exist here on Earth, so therefore we must be splitting this five thousand souls between. Well, may, may, maybe maybe everybody it's, on Earth. Maybe or, it's not the math of it. Everybody in the rest of the, the it's not the it's not the arithmetic though. It's it, it's about the fact that like amidst this large scale of time, amidst this large scale of people, you can have. You know, in a certain sense, a microcosm means that you're you realize that there's this greater existence out there but you're purposely ignoring it and going to this self-contained small event and these these two people celine and, and jesse they have these big lives that they're living mm -hmm. they've have their their emotional scars from the, their upbringing and their exes yeah. and they're setting it all aside and they're letting it go and they're just focusing on the microcosm of the moment which i think relates I'm, to what I'm brady done was with saying all that. About, i'm not done with the yeah. splitting of souls because i'm just like well maybe there's other people uh, on other planets and shit I, I was just meaning that Jesse brought up the reincarnation <laughs> idea, and I thought that the fact that he brings it up, that idea of this like enduring soul, but An only giving meaning that's through small moments. In the first act, must yeah. go off in the third. Well, I mean, do we want to have I like think a it goes off. Chekhov's theory? So, so just in case any of you I mean, were wondering, do we want to have a Star Trek? Talk? In case any of you were wondering, uh, the, the last five minutes, other worlds, and the last five minutes, Ben and Rob have actually been putting on boxing gloves, and we have the announcer ready to come into the ring. So that's been. <laughs> That's Weighing really in the left corner at 132 pounds, Robert Vincent Whiting. <laughs> weighing at the right corner with a not a greater than 31 waist. I bought new pants today, so I know my waist is 31 inches. What's yours? Uh, 33, maybe 34. Not bad. Maybe not 33. Bad. I'm doing okay. I'm 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 a I'm a fat thin man. Weighing in at how many pounds? Uh, five. Five pounds. Five pounds. Ben Stein, given this announcer's opinion, <laughs> I think we know who might win this fight. Un yeah. 130. You know, you best shut your mouth, five. or I'll just bite your ear off. You so um, I just wanted to piggyback off of what Ben was saying because he made a really good point about this. The oh, back to rational discussion. Back to rational discussion. <laughs> You've <laughs> had your fun. The thing, the thing about that. Damn you. <laughs> damn you, rational thought. <laughs> Why do you yeah, torment me so? There. Okay. Steve, get that goat over in the fence. Okay. So, so the, the the goats have left the boxing arena for now. That doesn't mean mm. they'll stay there. But um, uh, essentially, the the splitting of souls comment was something else that Jesse pointed to in that moment, which I thought was really interesting. In that moment, was that he said, if people split, and each time we're born, there aren't as enough souls to accommodate the number of people on the planet because of overpopulation. Is that why we're so scattered and why we're so drawn to? Um, yeah, he said that, for, but I mean, for, there's for, a universe of planets. I think the only thing he was I thinking. I don't think he was talking sci-fi. I, I really believe the only thing he was trying to point to was because he five. he was he was reading to. What was interesting now is that what we know now is that the piece of data that he's referring to is an incomplete piece of physics evidence, which physics is believes now that each time a person is born, it might be ten different pieces of different souls into that one into that one body, if you will. And he didn't know that. Physics didn't know that when the movie was made. So he was basically pointing towards an incomplete piece of data to begin with, which is interesting in itself. But he's also looking at... He's, he's also looking at... Uh, he's really What he's really looking at is, why are we lost? Why are we walking around 
like we don't know what we're doing on this planet. Like, why are we doing that? And I think that's all he's trying to point to. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. All right, like, that's all. Wait, wait, Ross, that's really cool. But, I mean, what do you think this film was about? Because I think you're the last to go on that front to cut Brady off and oh, well, make I, his I, well, belch all yeah. the more... Actually, I feel like like part of this discussion, a necessary part of this discussion, um, in terms of the, the has not it has not occurred yet. Right. It's been alluded to. Um, all right, everyone, all all you listeners out there, write in with what you think I'm about Literally to talk about. Literally, tens of listeners. Ben, Ten seconds from now, writing to yourself is the first sign of lunacy. I, I am the audience. It is true. I am the audience. Okay. The question is: the question is that in this dis- discussion of what is this film about this and the journey these meta. characters are on, mm-hmm. um, I know Brady, you have been itching, just like, uh, just like right in there, like itching, like under the the jockstrap mm-hmm. in there, and, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, I can smell it. You want to talk yep. about the first fight that they had? They're I walking do. down. Yes. They're walking down by the river, by the Danube, and. Uh, Celine asked the question. Oh wait, and we will do that. We'll do what? We can. I can answer the question wait, about what I think this up. is about later. Continue to set it up. I'm going. I, I'm. I, I'm setting it up. Okay. I'm describing the scene. The scene is where like they're walking down the Danube, and Celine asks him like if there was anything that like annoyed him well, about actually, her. I'd go back even earlier than that. Oh, I would love Brady's take. Brady, please. Uh, Wait, please no, no, no. Go on. I, okay, here's the thing. I wanted you to set it up so that I could do a plug from our sponsors right after this. We but, have a plug? But yeah, you have a plug. I am the plug. Yeah. I'm the one that stops the leakage of bad movies. But unfortunately, <laughs> like, we've... Okay, Brady, just go on with me. <laughs> okay, well... <laughs> um, well, no, I, I was going to say... I, I love you. <laughs> or you can do it right now. You can do the no, plug. No, no, no. Brady, go ahead. I mean, and this certainly goes into Rob's idea of this being relationship in microcosm. Is like, you know, pretty soon after we have them have their first kiss and they start talking, we enter this period, which I think is composed of a few scenes. I'd say a few scenes. Uh, one of which is this fortune teller, this palm reader, who comes up to them at a cafe, an outdoor cafe, and the second uh, takes yes. place in a church, and then finally like hits its conclusion as they're walking by the river and are confronted by a homeless poet, basically a man who makes his living by writing poetry for people. And so what essentially happens is, and Ben's been talking about this a lot, is this idea that Jesse is kind of cynical and Celine has a little bit more romance in her, which is two character traits that take really interesting directions as the series goes on. We see that really morph in them. Like they both, come to very interesting places where that's concerned. Those are different movies, though. But those are different movies. Uh, So, essentially, as they're sitting outside, this fortune teller comes up, and she reads Celine's palm and tells her she's going to be a great woman, and she's interested in this life of the woman, and basically asks for 50 bucks from both of them, and makes kind of a comment that Jesse regards as snide. She says to Jesse, well, he's learning. Like, don't worry about him. He's he's learning. And doesn't she just basically touch his hand for uh, like a New York second and then and then walks away? Yeah, it's very quick. The thing is, like, she's oh, no. totally I, right. I thought that was great because yeah, like she's totally right. Scenes, he's learning. He's three an scenes idiot. later, he says something like, um, "Oh, I'm always doing uh, this thing, you know, trying to learn how to play life in the way that I will eventually play it when I know what I'm doing." Mm. Which uh, oh, that's I, in the church scene. He yeah. describes himself as a thirteen-year-old like, boy, like two or three scenes later. But the, here's the thing: is like right at the time that she sa- he says that, he's just like, well, she kind of 
totally dismissed me and it was shitty and like oh, I yeah, felt like he's she riled totally up was condescending he... to me and she's just like well maybe you just feel that because you're not the center of attention for once white male and you know I, I don't I don't want to go too tangential but I'll just say like maybe I get that a lot maybe like a few scenes after the fight scenes that we're focusing on they come across a belly dancer and Jesse asks Celine if he should give her money so he is learning every girl he's I hang learning out to with be, to accept kind of more magical, frivolous entertainment on this to point, not be cynical about it. On this point, just to quickly interject, one of the reasons this sort of resonated with me is that um, when it comes to relationship dynamics, especially you know, male-female relationship dynamics, um, I had this sort of saying that an ex-girlfriend and I came up with is that men are stupid and women are crazy. In that, You, you guys didn't come up with that. We didn't come up with it, that but we certainly like, like repeated to me. We repeated it to each other quite often. Every time we had a fight, I'm like, "Okay, how are you being crazy?" And she'd tell me how she was crazy, and, he'd be and like, like coming up with shit. being stupid. And she's like, "How are you being stupid?" I'm like, "Okay, I was an idiot here, and I was an idiot there because I just had an idea in my head and just didn't listen, and you know whatever it was." And so the fact that he's what is he supposed to be like 23? Yeah, yeah. they're both 23. They're I both think. 23 years old. That's I mean, about right. I think back to when I was 23, and I would. I had some stupid ideas in my head. So the fact that, you know, he he's in this surreal experience. He's, you know, um, feeling all these new feelings towards this girl or whatever. And the fact that the woman comes up to him and says, "Oh, you're learning." Like he really is learning. Like he's a, he's a he's a dumb guy who is other okay. Not a dumb guy. He's smart, but he's dumb in the way guys are he's dumb. Smart, he's smart, but a guy. He, he's smart, but he's not educated. And he's and he's admitted that. He said no, I mean he's educated. No, he's educated. He's just too. not emotionally he's mature yet. He's just a person. Yet. He's just a person. He's just not emotionally mature yet, and he's like he's coming around to that, is it, is and he he's in... making a lot of progress, okay. which is why, which is why the mystic doesn't say, "Oh, he's hopeless and he's an idiot." She says he's learning because he will learn. Is he in college? Uh, I'm mm. guessing he's just out of college. I'm feeling like it's just out of college. Because didn't he? Isn't there a conversation that he has somewhere in there? And I'm not getting off track. I just wanted to clarify where he says that he was in school. He went and then he went to to go visit his girlfriend in Europe. It's kind of it's kind of undefined the vagary of like whether he's is or isn't. If he okay. is, he's like almost done. And if he isn't, okay. then he just finished. Okay, I feel like. Um, but anyways, I bring this up just to say that like I feel like it was a it, it was a real authentic situation this character found himself in. In that you know he he's feeling like the dumb guy cliche of just like not really understanding. Um, the wisdom that this mystic is bringing and like shedding light on both mm. of their particular situations at the time. Absolutely. And his cynical nature sort of takes that confusion and then immediately discredits what the mystic said. Um, even though part of his brain is processing it and like accepting it. And the acceptance of that comes out as Brady uh, talks about in, in like the later scenes, like in the fight, in the poet, in the, the belly dancer they come across later. Yeah, those are those are excellent points, especially <laughs> especially with regards to how they um, they tap into this guy who is wanting so badly to be understood, but, you know. And he, he talks about himself more than anybody. You know, he talks he asks her what she's up to, but he always responds with a story that he paints for her about himself. They're almost all about him. And as Rob pointed to, when the attention wasn't on him, uh, when the po when the uh, the psychic goes up to him and touches his hand. He takes that the worst, almost the worst way that a person could. Well, he does take it the worst way a person could take it. He takes it personal. Yeah. 
and at, at the same time, what was really interesting is he l- allows himself to justify her actions such that he makes the fortune teller out to be a fraud and says that she's not good, she's a phony, you know, and, and, and he, he half believes it himself. Well, he even makes the poet out to be a fraud. Yeah. Yeah, but he gives up on that a lot quicker. He gives up on that a lot quicker, but it was really... Well, yeah, he was yeah. genuinely impressed by the poet. I think we saw that from his reaction. Yeah, yeah, like, we talked about What that. do I have? Like, well, this is all my change. It's almost on his face here. I'm just like, it's not enough for and this. Then, and then, home, and then the awesome. one line of, of doubting afterwards, it, his whole line of argument was, no, that guy was too good. He was like too on point with our emotional state right now. Like he just understands us and talks about us in such an emotionally complex. And he like, must have written that poem in advance and then no plugged way. our word into it. There's yeah. no way someone can be that artistic and like brilliant. But like, okay, so that's his sort of trying to discount the whole thing. But it was only because he respected it so much. And he gives up on it after a sentence, and the next scene is the belly dancer scene, where he immediately says, "Hey, Celine, sir, give this this woman some money." And, and yeah, he says well, yes, and he does. That was interesting. I, so, I, so I, I think what's a good idea, and we can get more into this discussion in a little bit. But what what we're doing right now is, what does this film really mean? Sure. I thought we already did that. Uh, no, no, no. This is the segment that we're in right now. We're still in. And what's what it we're all gonna about? do is we're gonna sum this up. We're gonna go round robin with one word. Really? What does this film mean? That's not doable for me. Sorry. I can't do it in a word. I can do it in anticipation. A... Do it in as few words as you can, Brady. Time. Um, Ross. Get back to me. <laughs> ben. Um, escape from your m- emotional handicaps. Ross. Okay. Uh, you can Rob. you can do it in long form if you want. I did. I it's... I did anticipation. Really? Oh, 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 oh! That was your that was your word. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, juxtaposing. That's how I summed up this movie in one word. Can you explain anticipation at all? I can't. I'm buying I, time I, for I Ross. Yeah, all. I'll explain my uh, oh, I don't my need, thing, I don't, and then Ross can have the time. I don't need time, but actually, I, I think I need to explain it because I haven't really in, interjected in this conversation. Um, okay, so from the get-go, opening scene, right? Here's the thing. Um. This has already been going to be a tangent. But opening scene, we see um, arguing couple and her moving away from arguing couple. But here's the thing is, if they were a stereotypical couple who, like, met, cultivated a relationship, got together, continued, spent years together, that's where they'd end up. Hmm. And so what we have is them beginning at the beginning right next to a couple that's ending where it ends. So that's, anyway... That's a good thought. I hadn't thought about that. That yet. is a good thought. That's cool. Right. So the whole thing is anticipation is the entire thing of the movie, which is that is the thing um, that drives a relationship, that keeps a relationship fresh and cool and new, is anticipation. Um, they are sitting there looking at this couple, kind of laughing at them and going like, oh, what the fuck is up with this couple look they're so mad at each other why are they even together blah 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 blah. um they don't have any anticipation left but there they are themselves going well i just met you hey you want to go to the lounge car together anticipation of the next step and then they go to the lounge car and then it's come to the point where he's going to get off the the train well i can't i can't let it end there i need to create a situation where i can anticipate the next step. 
Well, the next step is us going on our first date kind of montage. Like, let's walk around the town. Let's go on the Ferris wheel. Let's go see a play. Let's go talk to some random people. Let's go do this. Let's go play pinball at a bar. Let's go. Like, this is all first date kind of shit. Right. Anticipation. Yeah, that's well. See, but this well is where well, I think I, it fits so mm. neatly into Linklater's idea of, like, time and eternity. This is continual putting off of thinking of the future, even though time itself, our very lives, are finite and will end. Right, but how does the film end? It ends they're, with them putting it off. No, yeah, we'll get together yeah, in six months. Exactly. And where do they end? On trains, going separate direction, feeling anticipation. I'm not really quite sure what... I'm not sure I agree with the anticipa- anticipation thing, because I almost feel like you're right in the sense that it informs like the plot development in terms of what the characters are thinking and it push the, the plot forward. But I feel like they're not going through the movie they're not living the movie anticipating the next moment they are oh, living the movie are. experiencing the moment they're yeah i actually think it's the inverse the of anticipation Sorry, i feel man. like they're they're losing themselves in the moment like we we talked about this theme about the I microcosm of time yeah. and is they're losing mm-hmm. themselves in the present and they're not anticipating the next moment but they're so in that moment, and well, they, they want the moment Ethan to continue. Ho- why didn't then Ethan Hawke's character tell her immediately that he had just been dumped and so forth? Well, and so one of on. the he was ashamed. One of the things yeah, that he's anticipating the moment where because he he's to a say that. One of damaged. The, and no, he didn't want to say it. Mildly no, flawed character. No, he didn't character. want to say it. But so. I mean, like he knew that he eventually would have to. I don't because think he, you knew don't he say that. Think he that even beginning. says that like out loud that I well I knew we'd eventually run around to this sub subject. Yeah, you're on a first date. You don't. You don't haul out your dirty laundry. But in he's the not first anticipating it. It's more. Not yeah. You're right. Ross not is raising his hand. Ross we should let Ross talk. Fucking a. Okay. Ross has got the conch shell. Yeah. Thank you. Um, a couple of things. Um, first. I agree. <laughs> okay. That was funny. Thank you. Everybody agrees that. with anything that's against Rob. I agree. <laughs> Seconded. Uh, third. All right, Ross. Go ahead. Uh, do I can I get in some eyes on that? Eyes. Hi. Eyes. I, the eyes. I, yes, I, the eyes have I. it. <laughs> <laughs> I just voted against myself. I'm a stupid idiot. Okay. All right. So here's moving on. So firstly, with regards to Mr. Um, Mr. Uh, Jesse, played by uh, Mr. Hawk. Mr. Hawk. Um, something that was very interesting to me. Well, first I, I know I needed to say what my word was and what I was going to say. I'll just keep it there. It was life and death, which is one of the many, 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 many themes of this movie. Um, the thing that I found interesting about Jesse, particularly in the scene where he, uh, after he gets upset with the palm reader, where he, um, gives her all the change in his pocket, uh, or he gives her, he gives her change and all of his change, but he gives her some money. Um, and it was a lot of his own money. We don't know the personal, and, and please feel free to jump in on this, but we don't know the personal um, angle that he's playing this at. Is he playing to get laid? Is he playing it for how much cash he's got left in his pocket to get home? Is he playing it also at the same time to impress her? Is it all of those? Is he making all of those choices as, as, a, as a performer, as an actor, as a character? Um, are those things that are happening all at the same time? When the poet comes up to them and gives him the poet, he hides in himself. He looks down. He puts his hand over his chest. He digs the other hand in the pocket to just dump out all the change that he can. And I wanted to pose the question when the poet comes along, because Ben brought this up, and I thought it was a really good point, that the poet 
symbolizes, you know, a sense of of possibility for these guys. It's just another thing along the way, another fro along the way, as Rob put it, that allows them to sort of escape for a while. And as Brady put it, it's an it's another opportunity for them to be able to look at um, are we compatible? Do we see from the same perspective? Is this a moment in time that we're going to avoid again, or is this something that is going to last for us? And yet the poem itself is is very fleeting and very deep. And and all we see is Ethan Hawk dig his hand into his pants. He looks down, he puts his hand across his chest, and he just tosses the change in the guy's hand. And he looks upset. But the question I wanted to pose is, what is he upset about? And that's a great question to ask. And we're going to come right back with that question right after we do this episode's uh, session of Rank It, Bitch. So that's coming up right now. And stay tuned for a question of what does Ethan Hawke feel when he puts the change into the poet's hand? Or wait, what? What, what's you his, what, what is he? What's his intent? Why is he doing it? Or what's his intent? What's his motivation, as it were? He feels the money. Yeah. But we're going to get into those answers and those more detailed kind of little things yeah. going on <laughs> right after this. Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! Bitch! All right, so Brady, please introduce this uh, week's version of Rank It. Hey, everybody, 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 everybody. Uh, we are doing Rank It, bitch. And Brady Larson has got a brand new list for us to do. Okay, uh, this will be our thir- first thirst. I almost said thirst. I must be thirsty. Um, this is our I'll first that. list that ties in thematically to the movie we watched. We just watched Before Sunrise, which is a movie that takes <sighs> place within the span of 24 hours. So we're going to do our top seven films that basically take place within 24 hours. Boom. And with us, we have Brady Larson, as per usual, and Rob Whiting, as per usual. But we also have Ross Murray and Ben Stein. And they are awesome. And they are yeah. here. So Thank you, Rob. I can only go. attest you, to my own yeah. awesomeness. They're I awesome. cannot speak to anyone else here. You can only okay. attest to the perception of your own awesomeness. Uh, this you. is also true. Yeah. This is also true. All right. Just making sure very that we're wise. clear on that point. Rob is very wise. Mm. Occasionally. <laughs> Why is your, why is Rob? So who's Rob? kicking us it's off? It's odd because wisdom is not something that's usually occasional. Called wise because that's what he is. It's just the characteristic trait came, just came out. For the viewers listening, he's a very humble man. So he, uh, he's just he just. Except when I'm on tape, I'm then I'm a total dick. Well, he Rob say something humble, bitch, <laughs> magnets. That's right. All right, continuing on. <laughs> Wow. All right, so who's going to start us off? We're going to go clockwise here. I'm going to start. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Rob says that his number seventh best film that takes case. Takes case? Place. Place. Takes place. It's a PL, not a a K sound. Not a K cell. It takes case in a play. It's a PL, not a K cell. With the the Godot waiting. You can placate the. PL and K sound. all this shit. Okay. Right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, number work. seven, Speed. Awesome movie. I said that very quickly. You did. Because of the title. It was so fast, it went by like 55 miles an hour. For those of you who are an American, that's uh, Speed. 
And what's that about, Rob? Oh, it's about a bomb on a bus. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. What do you like about it? No, yeah, yeah. Tell us what you like, because my understanding oh. of this is that Sandra well, Bullock I mean, was hot. Well, I mean, I like it at Keanu the least. Reeves was Keanu Reeves. Dude, Sandra Bullock is not hot. Movie. I mean, she's got that gap. I mean, wh- wh- when did it, when <laughs> what year did this come out? Ninety four. Ninety four. Yeah, ninety four. They weren't allowed to show that. Because I was an adolescent male, and therefore she was hot. Yeah, that gap. There's really not much more logic than that. She's also driving a very yeah, fast Yeah, but in class. Gravity this year, she had that gap. Well, in Speed, she did talk about how she should... She had a gap? She and Keanu Reeves should base their relationship on sex, mm-hmm. which to a prepubescent male or young adolescent male means, means fucking hot. Like, I'm fucking DTF? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, Speed, good choice. I like that movie. Yeah. Of the, of the action movie thriller things, like, that was a very solid... Movie. I mean, it is the bottom of my list, but it made my list. So, I mean, uh, Speed kind of defined my childhood. I, it's the first time I got to see Dennis Hopper stick a screwdriver in somebody's ear. Uh, not for reels, but I mean, like, for pretends. When was the first time for reels? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was several years oh. later uh, at my, at my uh, grandmother's 80th uh, high school reunion because she went to high school with Dennis Well, Hopper. your grandma oh. was being pretty lippy to Hopper. Yeah, I know. Well, rest in peace, Dennis. <laughs> and she did need a quick end. By the way, I totally believe all of these stories. <laughs> oh, God. Just, I'm Hope falling Mandy for them. I'm so hooked one. in. <laughs> okay, Ross. Ross, well, what's your number seven? No, no, right, clock, no, clockwise, clockwise. So we're oh, clockwise. Okay. Um, oh, Brady. All right. I didn't do this to cheat, but I'm happy it ended up this way because my number seven movie that technically takes place within a 24-hour span and perhaps I'm cheating on this one, but Speed. I don't think I am, is Richard Linklater's oh, okay. 2001 film, Waking, yeah, Waking Life. Life. 2001. Yeah, um, I mean... I saw that with Ross. Yeah, we did. We saw that together in Berkeley. Yeah, with Bobby and... Uh, and oh my gosh, and... Uh, um, Joey. We, we, saw it with, we saw it with Joey, and we saw it with um, Chris Lotz. For the rest of the wow. podcast listening audience, those are just people. Chris Lott, uh, Joey, middle school friends. Yeah. Wow. You, you audience don't know them and probably won't hear from them on this podcast, but they're people. We saw them. We've known each other for a while. Anyway, no uh, Brady, uh, why? I will not why, why weigh in like on whether or not those why, are people uh, or not. I think it's a beautiful <laughs> movie. Uh, so basically, this is Richard Linklater working, I think, with at least the number of people who appear in his films, you actually get the uh, Celine and Jesse characters from the before series in one scene. You also get, I think, one of the major characters from Dazed and Confused. Uh, And it's basically just all takes place within a dream, but it's kind of this animated over live action idea of what the power of dreams is. And yeah, just like, it's basically about dreams, but like as a variation on a theme, it just explores everything about how this consciousness works and, kind of the the imaginative power it has in our culture and it's just yeah a beautiful movie it's transfixing and it always is a rewarding whenever i revisit it so link later beautiful um ross your turn well my number seven is actually the predecessor to the one that i'm sure will be on another segment of this same podcast which is the film that we reviewed um on a separate occasion, which was uh, 
Before Sunrise. This is the second film in that series called Before Midnight, and that's my number seven film. Before Midnight was the third I thought third Brady one. said that we weren't allowed to do those. Did he? No, everything's allowed. I chose those, to leave Those are the off. rules that he no, no, just no made up. I, ch- I chose to leave them off. <laughs> I left off of the Before series. He backed it up with a gun. Because, I mean, I, I feel no, like truthfully, so this series is so strong, it would, it would sort of dominate our lists. Yeah, it would be very, very Understood. High. Yes, that makes okay, sense. Okay, well, then, I, then actually, then if... No, 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 we're just fucking with you. Any rules that you make for yourself? No, no, there are, are no rules. I even said that Connor on Ross, is it an shall be held choice. in carnivorous couchdom. Oh, hmm. thank you. I heard the gong go off. Thank you. You know, I we all kind of gong. like apologies here. I left off Groundhog Day because technically we get the day before Groundhog Day before we get Groundhog Day. But Groundhog Day is one of the best comedies ever made. Yeah, I cut those out so, to thin out my list, too. So this so. is actually the second one, right? Before Sunset is the second one. Oh, uh, yeah, Before Sunset so is the before second. Before Sunset is the one that I wanted to focus on. Okay. So my, my number seven film is uh, Before Sunset, and uh, these gen- generous gentlemen at Carnivorous Couch are allowing me to have an addendum to the rule because I really love the movie. There's no um, rule. You're just, you're just doing what you want. It's anarchy. Just throw nice. it out there. Okay, I will. Anarchist Couch. Did you guys hear that? And that I can tell. It does whatever yeah. the fuck it wants. It happens <laughs> every other week or so, so whatever I, it feels like. I, I chose Before Sunset. This is a film Brady and I saw together when we were 18 and 17, 18, and um, truly uh, one of the most memorable films of my young adulthood uh, because it deals with themes of uh, confrontation and I don't want to give away too many of the themes because I'm sure there's a whole other dialogue for another time that segment's going to be done but what I will say is that it is timely it's about um, rejuvenating an unrequited love uh, wanting things to work out uh, wanting wanting a better tomorrow and hoping that and believing that if you have had magic in your life before you can have magic in your life again it's one of the most optimistic films I've ever seen. Uh, the whole film is um, like a phoenix rising, just rekindling and rebuilding things that fall apart and constantly just re- rebuilding things in your life. And it's a beautiful movie, and uh, it's very moving. I love the film. Yeah, I agree. I'll just say this. I'm just not going to show up anywhere for me right before midnight or sunset is, is my favorite of the series and one of my favorite movies yeah. of all time. Yeah, it's my favorite of the series as well. All right, then, Ben, uh, what's your number seven? Well, I, I feel like I'm somewhat cheating with this one in the sense that I haven't watched it for over a decade. And uh, I don't remember much of the, the specifics of the plot. And all I can really remember is uh, the impact it had upon me and you know, my gen- the general sort of spirit in which it, it connected with me. And that's uh, the Kevin Smith film Clerks. Mm. Which, uh, you know, stars that's your seven. That's my seven. Yeah, I mean, it, it stars a uh, couple guys who are you know working at as clerks at a, you know, Seven Eleven style store, and uh, they're dealing with some heartbreak and workplace shenanigans. And there's uh, much like this film. It's it's a very uh, dialogue and conversation heavy film. Nice. And I remember just I just I just remember leaving it with this impression that like, for dealing with a lot of the angst that young adults have in terms of finding their place uh, in the professional world, finding their place emotionally with their personal lives and their significant others, um, 
just like like stumbling through a lot of that while also sort of clinging to um, the notions of what they think they should be rather than just following what their personalities really are and how their conversation how they should live their lives. I just remember just being a good movie plus having really good nerdy di dialogue conversations about like which was better, you know, Empire Strikes Back or, or Return of the Jedi. And you know, Jay and Silent Bob singing the Berserker song and you know just doing funny stuff. Like I I just thought it was a fun movie and you know, it's in black and white and um I mean, I haven't seen it in a long time. I just remember being one of Kevin Smith's best movies. It's I love that film too. It's really intimate. It's got a lot of uh, it's just a very personal film because it takes place in, you know, one location. It's just very Did you realize that it actually inspired a uh, a cartoon series? And they had a cartoon series called Clerks. I loved that show. Where the two guys would run around and do like ridiculous things and they was very fanciful and <laughs> with alternate dimensions and <laughs> magic and weird shit like that. It's awesome. Yeah. All right. We're running super long, so I'm going to get my uh, number six out here right quick and just be like, boom, training day. Because that movie was pretty fucking cool. Uh, yes, I, I really like that movie. That I might mean, have been a movie I that should have made my list. It weird. didn't, though. And the fact that they didn't know what the ending was going to be was kind of probably the reason why it came <laughs> off so weird. But uh, that's my number six. All right, uh, number six. I'm even surprised to find this so low because this is like a formative one for me growing up. Like uh, in high school is when I kind of started to watch movies. So my number six is Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. One of my favorite directors. Uh, I think he just does consistent, vivid, fascinating, like character-driven work. He gets amazing performances out of his actors time after time. And uh, I think this movie, yeah, it just has a lot to wrestle with. Like, if it has any criticism, it's just so bursting with ideas that, like, sometimes it seems like it's going to topple on itself. Mm. But it's it's unbelievably meaningful. It, it has Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, Jason Robards, Tom Cruise's best performance. Anyway, I'm running too long. Magnolia is an amazing movie. Uh, surprised it's only at number six, but great movie. Uh, my number six is Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee. Uh, it's been years and years since I've seen this film. Um, I watched it in a multicultural uh, humanities class when I was maybe 16 years old and was quite shocked to find the, the, the picture that Spike Lee paints in this film is, is, is very powerful. Uh, one man, his day in the life in the ghetto, very simple, and he walks around and he talks to people in the neighborhood, tries to get a sense of how things are going in their lives, and inadvertently winds up finding a lot of questions and answers for himself in his own life, but more questions than anything. And Spike Lee stars in the film. He directed it. Um, it's a fantastic movie. Uh, deals a lot with the complacency in the ghetto, uh, a lot of the uh, the disparity, but a lot of the humor, too. It's hysterical at, at times and uh, shocking at times and groundbreaking movie, and uh, I need to rewatch it. It's a great film. So, All right. My number six is uh, Collateral, the Michael Mann film starring Jamie Foxx and Tom Cruise. And uh, one of the reasons I love this movie, that even though one, one could find some faults with it and some plot holes in it, um, I find it's most compelling in the sense that our two leads give phenomenal performances. Jamie Foxx as the overqualified and underachieving 
taxi driver who is capable of so much more and of great humanity, and Tom Cruise as the self-destructing assassin um, there to you know kill a bunch of witnesses for for the drug cartels before they go on trial, um, and I just find it it's it's I just find it a great character piece. I think that the both characters are very well realized and developed. There's some phenomenal scenes where each of them can like you know palpably like change and show their true colors, and uh, the music is great. And um, I I I, I, just, I just I just like it. It's good. Yeah, and no, I, I really like that film a lot. It might be my favorite of man's. Well, no, Heat, but but after Heat, I still haven't seen Heat. Oh man, oh, that makes me a bad person. Oh god, no! But nah. it's so good. Okay. And and uh, the cinematography and collateral, just to back up what Ben's saying, is ridiculous yeah it's, it just it sets a really good Florida vibe there. for it i, I mean, might like, need you to watch that again in the plot but one of my like favorite really depictions vibe. of la put I, I haven't yeah. seen yeah. collateral since it came out i think i think ross and i both saw it in the theater yeah. when it came out and we Long. both kind of poo-pooed it we right? did we did well we were having a bad day and we were kids and we weren't really watching i movie. think you and i were kind of feuding too i think it's worthy of a, a rewatch yeah i think we were just like we had hung out with each other for like six days straight and we were just kind of like Annoyed, I think at that point, and then we had a talk afterwards. We're like, dude, we we were hanging out a little too much. Like, I think we're getting annoyed with each other. It was an it was an intense movie, but it was good. Oh, oh, my number. uh, Well, I already did my number (laughs) six, but my number five. (laughs) Moving along, after making Ross feel really uncomfortable, um, (laughs) it's Clerks. uh, For all those reasons that Ben said, it was his number seven. Oh, do you, do you have any additional reasons? Uh, I think Clerks is amazing. I think it it kind of shapes it it kind of shaped independent film for the eighties, mm. and basically just said, "Look, this is possible." Didn't it come out in the nineties? Nineties, early nineties. Yeah, yeah ninety two at least. But early, that's still after early. the eighties. Yeah, yeah. But it had a very eighties retro feel to it. Yes. And black and white. Well, that's what and 90s was about. Soderbergh, no, too. I, I really think it came out in the 90s, but I'm pretty sure it was filmed in the 80s. Because he he developed the film himself. That's why he shot in black and white and blah, 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 right? Like, it took a long time to produce. Yeah, but I mean, I, Clerks is a, is a product of the 90s. Kevin Smith is like a total product of the 90s. Yeah, well, I mean, Mole Rats guy. is totally 90s, and everything post that is totally was... 90s. <laughs> and even Jersey Girl, like in 2006, is still totally 90s. So, um. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't very. What good. are you saying? Uh, <laughs> that Kevin Smith uh, is a 90s dude, and. Uh, after the 90s, he sort of kind of lost his way Wait, a little bit. Bro, are you, are you yeah. saying Kevin oh, Smith's fat? Oh, God. Did you? Oh That's God. just going too far. All right, Brady, what's your number five? Brady, what's your five? Okay, my, my number five is uh, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. For all I know, this might even belong higher. I don't know. I've only seen it the one time. Uh, and Ross has already said a bunch about it. I'll just say that, yeah, it's, it's probably the most meaningful film about racism I've seen. And also just what a brilliant plot device. Cause the idea is that all of these tensions happening in New York take place on the hottest day of the year. Heat so it, wave. so it, it uses heat. heat Rob is recording uh, right now at the wall of sound in New York while Brady is talking. Just let anyway. Yeah, no, I, I can, I always heat have, uh, it all, 
it always uh, impresses me to have a movie make things palpable. Spike Lee's film makes the heat palpable and ties that in really neatly to, you know, just bubbling bigoted tensions. It's a really good movie that I need to revisit. So, yeah. Number five. Cool. That's awesome. Um, just to uh, to just to say something, Rob, I, I do actually remember us going and watching Collateral. I'm sure you'll edit this out, so it's fine. Um, and I do recall that, yes, we hung out with each other. I think it was like nine days in a row. This is a lot. So I totally get that. And we were... Well, I think we just like... Lit- I, I think it was you who voiced it, too. I we was like... like Dude, <laughs> we should go let's, chill and uh, pass let's take out. a break. Yeah, yeah. All we did, yeah. Well, we hung out like what, like the whole friggin'. Well, I was super depressing at that point in time too. So, shit happens. It's not on you. Yeah. Well, and and the movie was like bloodshed, bloodshed, bloodshed. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it's like two hundred people died in that movie. <laughs> it was good. Um, all right, uh, cruising back down on to number four. Oh, number oh, no, whoa, ben, whoa, whoa, whoa. Ben, Ben's number, number five. five. Ben's number five. It's Ross's number five. No, Ross is number five. Ross is number five. Uh, my number five is tw- is the Twelve Angry Men. Um, oh, good choice. Twelve Angry yeah, Men. Good one. Thank you. Uh, it is uh, a beautiful, beautiful script, an incredible film, and uh, it's very simply about twelve people being locked into a decision as to whether or not. To, um, to put someone to death, and they have all decided at the very beginning of the film and the beginning of the trial that they know who it's going to be, and then they're locked into the jury system, and there's only one man that decides, you know what, I'm not enrolled in this, I'm not interested, I don't believe what we've been sold, and one by one he gets these people to look at the other side of this human being that's being, their life is on the line. And why should they get the death penalty? And it winds up turning the tables and all the people in the room that are being asked to reflect on this person's mortality, all of their own mortalities are the ones that are um, are uh, being put on the line. And it's a very, very powerful film. So uh, for that reason, number five. Well, I have not... I have not seen 12 Angry Men, and I have not seen Do the Right Thing. So instead, as my number five, I will go with the German film Lola Rent. Or, uh, as we know in American, it's Americanized title, Run Lola Run, um, which was a, just a fantastic film. I mean, it's about um, it's about this young woman and her and her boyfriend, who's, I guess, a drug dealer, and he gets himself into a pickle. And she has to scramble her ass off. A pickle is understating it. Yeah, he's going to die in like 20 minutes if she doesn't come up with a million dollars or help him find the drugs that he lost or something like that. Uh, it's been a few years since I've seen it. But uh, I love this movie because it's this, it's this couple that love each other and are forced into desperate scenarios to try and save each other. And amidst the phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal soundtrack, um, it has this extremely surreal bent to it in that the same like 20 minute segment or half hour, whatever the runtime is each time, it actually gets replayed like three times. It's like three alternate scenarios. And as the scenarios go on, like the characters almost have these like ghost remembrances of what happened in the previous iterations and uh you know it's about like what 
what these two characters mean to each other, to the lengths with which they will go to try and save each other, the ridiculousness of some of the plot contrivances, and um, and just the sort of very surreal nature. Like you know, she eventually—I don't want to spoil too much in the film, but like. Uh, Spoiler full podcast. You can say whatever the fuck you well, want. Well, we're going to spoil the movie that we just anything. reviewed. We'll we're spoil not gonna... anything. Anyways, so she has some luck at the <laughs> casino in like the third of the three acts. And like the way she pulls it off with the screaming and the like crazy. Sorry, that, was, that was Gizmo that was from, from the Gremlins. Exactly <laughs> how it happened in the film. Anyways, I thought it was a really cool film. Um, and the whole thing's in German, which I think has a, a nice quality to it. And like the, the two actors are uh, uh, phenomenal. What, what was the female's act? Franca Potente. Yeah, Franca Potente, Potente. Who, who ended up uh, starring uh, opposite Matt Damon in The Born yeah, Identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of her only English-speaking roles. I mean, the mainstream speaking roles. And The Born Supremacy, I think. Uh, no, no, she was briefly. Oh wait, briefly. oh was she in a flashback? Yeah, she's yeah, in. A, she's in about fifteen minutes. Anyways, she's phenomenal. The the male lead is also he's more of a supporting character, but he's also phenomenal. And the soundtrack, like I said, is absolutely amazing. It stands on its own. I will listen to the soundtrack without the film. <laughs> it's so good. Nice. Uh, but yeah, anyways, uh, that's I'll, I'll just listen to the soundtrack and not watch the pictures. Like, I'll just listen to the movie on headphones. It's you know, like, uh, actually, actually... It's that cool. Actually, one, wow. one more thought about this is that... Um, uh, I remember when I, when I was first getting into this film, uh, one of my, my female friends, who was actually you know, from Germany herself, uh, one of the reasons she really loved the, the movie and the character is that she portrayed, like, the quote-unquote real woman. Uh, she wasn't a manufactured Hollywood stereotype. Like, she's running down the street, and her bra straps are showing. Like, she's messy. She's unkempt. Um, she's a strong, independent-minded woman, and she can she can take care of herself and have intelligence and try and overcome this desperate situation they're in. Um, and so, to a certain extent, it's very, like, woman-empowering. Yeah, and that makes men really uncomfortable when they're watching the film, by the way. Uh, some men. <laughs> it's a badass movie. I, I was being really facetious, but I guess some of our listeners n- might not get my sense. Of Perhaps you're one of those men. Yeah, yeah. I feel really insecure with, when women are like running and they got bra straps showing. Oh man, I that feel like really all insecure. women should be airbrushed in real life. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I want that soft makeup look to everybody. And there's I don't want them no to way that I, I was just wanted to be natural. No, but there's no way I was lying when <laughs> I said that. Ben makes a great point. Absolutely, the, uh, it's a it's a no, raw film. Absolutely, no way. Our our listeners are going to get that because our listeners are actually uh, referred to as Ben. I am the audience. Exactly, but you're also all on the- hear me and succumb to my wisdom. But it's weird because you're also on the podcast. I folded the universe on top of itself, and yeah. I am the Actually, audience. At this and moment, the do you want to remind yourself to do something y- in your daily life? You're podcasting the podcast. Pick up milk. Today. <laughs> <laughs> just, just say that, and, and then you'll know. Pick up your milk. Good. You will be healthy. Hold it over and your head. Bones. Then throw it at Brady. Calcium. will be sleeping in the room next to yours. Hey, man, I get up by sometime. You will be listening to this at 4 a.m. All right, moving on. Number number four. Number four for Rob. Yes. 
we'll be back. Now that we're in a 33-minute rendition of Rank It. Uh, All right. <laughs> go on, go on. Number four is Ferris Bueller's I'm, I'm Day I'm happy setting off a record for because longest Because that movie is ever. fucking pimp and awesome. Ferris Bueller. Ferris Bueller, bitch. Bueller. Dude, that movie is so Bueller. motherfucking tight. It Bueller. shames me that I had to leave it off. Dude, I co-star in that movie. Ben Stein. Bueller. 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 And you're also in that what movie kind of where economics they go, was we it? all wear masks, metaphorically speaking. <laughs> all right, do you have anything else to say on Ferris Bueller's Day Off? It's an awesome movie, and Ferris Bueller might not have even existed. It might have just all been all about that dude. About Cameron yeah, and Cameron's Cameron. head. Yeah, exactly. I dig it. Um, you know, it's like I'm Garfield so without Garfield, Ferris Bueller without Ferris Bueller. Yeah, I'm deeply sorry to Those leave ladies Paris who are sunbathing were being introduced that by somebody else. It has to do with else. being in a day because that's such a badass movie that it's in the fucking name. Day, day yeah. off, yeah. yeah day. Brady pointed that out. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, day off is in the title. But like, it's a classic '80s romp. I think we've, for me, like I've already hit masterpiece level with "Do the Right Thing." My top four is like movies that I love with like every ounce of my soul, and my number four is my favorite band in their debut film, A Hard Day's Night. The Beatles, A Hard Day's Night. Not only... favorite band? The Beatles are my favorite band, yeah. Mine too. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not only I don't it, know if you can argue that another band did more years. for music than the Beatles did. Yeah, that's nothing to do with favorite, but okay. Touche. Mm. You know, they're the best band. They're my favorite band. They're, they're just everything. Wait, those two things have nothing to do with each other. Everything about okay. the movie. All right, so about the movie. Yeah, not only is this movie basically it it pretty much invents the music video. Let's start with that. It lets us see all their personalities in this way that's perfect, but also is like so slyly self-referential. Like they, Rob, Rob was leaning toward the mic, so I was gonna let him say something in the middle of my spiel. It's my spiel, Rob. <laughs> I resemble that remark. Don't dedicate your spiel to talking about Rob. Uh, yeah, no, it, it's it's got. He's not dedicate worth your it. spiel to talking about me. No, talk about me. What can I say about this movie? Like, it would already be good just with its script and with the performances and the music, but you also get this direction from Richard Lester that's really intelligent, and so it becomes a movie that says really interesting things about celebrity. Like, you have that famous shot at the end where the helicopter's taking off. And like, there's this wacky grandfather character who's Paul, uh, Paul McCartney's grandfather, who's basically forged autographs, like counterfeit autographs, to try to make money. And so like, they're falling out of the helicopter, and so you get the shot of the helicopter lifting off, and just like all these fake autographs littering down on the camera. It's just, it's got cool, like, funny things to say about fame, and who better to symbolize like crazy fame than the Beatles at the height of their powers? There's never been a more crazy fandom than that. So, yeah, no, it, it's a great movie with great music. It's perfect. Sherlock Holmes. No, the Beatles were crazier. I agree. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. I'm kicking it to Ross. Uh, my number four is a comedy. Um, I have two comedies on my top ten. I'm, I'm very, very proud of that. Uh, maybe technically three uh, if you want to look at it from a certain angle. But uh, my number four is Airplane. Um I adore this film. I saw it when I was 11, and I wasn't allowed. I shouldn't have been allowed to watch it, but I, I did. Um, <laughs> well, your dad had a drinking problem. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He would he would do what the character in the, in the in the movie would it do. Results which is in lots of 
crumb. <laughs> he would he would take a drink and pour it over his eyeball <laughs> because he couldn't control his drinking. And that movie has so many of some of the best quotes that I've ever seen ever ever. I mean, from almost any film. It's like uh, the red zone is for nose stopping <laughs> only, and the white zone is for unloading and loading only. It's basically no. The, the red zone is for unloading that's and right. loading only, yeah. and the white zone is for n- no stopping at any time. Do we have this someone? This is who's about my abortion, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Do we have someone who speaks jive here? <laughs> oh, excuse me, jive, I, I, officer. I, <laughs> I, I, I speak jive. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 basically the the Hamlet of comedy films in terms of its quotability. It has probably 50 quotes that you can find in in the in the film 50 try 150 man um you know my favorite is the little boy and the little girl sitting next to each other and he asks her would you like cream in your coffee and she says no thank you i take my coffee black like my men and he's like <laughs> they're like eight years old <laughs> it's just like i love this film this is an amazing film and then with her the with her the, the pit cock, the the cockpit the pit cock. <laughs> The cockpit. And the, and the guy's like, Jimmy, have you ever been in a Turkish <laughs> See, I'm so glad, like, Airplane's not going to make my list. I'm so glad that there's so many, like, amazing films just within this one topic. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm going to kick it to Ben Stein. Ben Stein, you're number four. What's your number four, man? Night of the Living Dead. Mm-hmm. The 1968 black and white George Romero film that invented the modern form of zombies um it's a revolutionary film it defined a genre that continues to exist and is perhaps in its its heyday right now Mm -hmm. and i mean you go back and watch this film and it has all of the major major sort of like plot points and themes that you want from a good zombie film i mean you've got the the shock and horror of Something that is otherwise completely inconceivable. The fact that not only have the dead risen, but they are there to feast upon the flesh of the living. Republicans? Uh, I won't explicitly say that, but yes, indeed, Republicans. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I apologize. Um, but like, I mean, it not only doesn't have like the, 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 this concept of like... Uh, this shock and awe and like contemplating the things that are were previously inconceivable and challenging one's own beliefs. Inconceivable. <laughs> but also the the um the survival aspects of like sticking together, realizing when you have to sort of shutter the doors, uh the selfishness of like when do you abandon others, the panic of when you don't make a rational decision, you just run and panic and run around and uh, I mean, this is a movie that has all of those horror tropes together while at the same time in 1968 having a black male lead as your protagonist and hero character who eventually dies from a random misunderstanding at the end of the movie. Very nice. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, it's the foundation of one of the biggest genres of horror films. So I put it in, in my top seven as uh, my number four. Le Fin. A roll. It is Rob. Rob's number three is Magnolia, and I won't say any much more about it because I am podcasting with colossal blowhards who are going to talk a lot. Nine. Good job uh, picking Magnolia there, Pompey. 
<laughs> when I was in Palm Beach. <laughs> Racist. <laughs> okay, my number three. It's an amazing movie. One of the best movies of one of the best directors ever to live. And might be the best comedy ever made. Like, I, I don't see how it's not, actually. Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. God damn you, that was my number three. <laughs> nice. Uh, well, what the hell, man. Great minds think alike. This is the war room. There's no, there's no crying in baseball, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen. I, you know, I'm sure Ben's going to talk a lot about this movie. So because I have that luxury of knowing he has it coming up, no, I was hoping you would talk more about it. I'll just mention two of my favorite scenes, both involving maybe my favorite character actor ever, George C. Scott. Amazing. Yeah, one of them is just the fact that in the middle of one of his diatribes is this general. He literally goes ass over tea kettle, and it was a total accident, just him acting to the floorboards, and Kubrick decided it was so good that he kept it in, and I'm eternally grateful he did. And then Which there's moved, also... Well, wait, what moment was that? There's just a moment where he's like going off ranting to the president, and he literally does like almost a cartwheel. He just like eats shit. It's, he, a, it's amazing. He just like eats shit and immediately bounces back up. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, the, and it was a total error, but they just left it in because he's that crazy. <laughs> It's been too long since I've seen this movie. Um, I need to see it again. But then I also love when Yahoo! there's a moment. Yahoo! <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. But there's a moment of tension when it's like, okay, if we end up bombing the Russians on accident, the world will end. But maybe there's a chance that the Russian guns will shoot us down. So the Americans are actually praying to be shot down by the Russians. And George C. Scott's character is so militarily oriented that the president's asking, like, well is there any chance that our plans could actually escape the Russian radar and bomb them anyway? And he's just like, fuck yeah! Like, the, the, the plans will just like go like this, and they'll whiz. Oh, I've seen it, Mr. President. It's so great. And then suddenly realizes in the middle, like, ah, fuck, wait. No, that's bad. <laughs> you know, I mean, okay, so if we can combine our, our, our two picks right now. Um, so the thing that I love about this movie is that, you know, it, the, the satire of it, in that it takes the... The Cold War militaristic mentality, the hard line, like, well, if they cross this line, we will have to declare nuclear war and therefore, like, end all life on the planet through mutually assured destruction. Mm -hmm. And it it takes that concept of, like, the hard line militaristic thing that was, uh, you know, very prevalent at the time. It, It was a major, you know, Philosophical thought line in, in the population of that. And Living it, it, it in this day and age, I still don't understand how that was the case. Like it's like baffling to me. But anyway, go on. And it was it was the hysteria of the time, and it took the hysteria. But that's of the so time. baffling to me. But anyway, go on. It was baffling to everyone because it was hysteria, and therefore makes no sense. Um, but I mean, there was it was very interesting circumstances at the time. The film is a brilliant. Excuse me, uh, a satire of the whole thing, and has many a many brilliant line. Plus, uh, uh, who's the guy? Peter Sellers who plays Peter Dr. Sellers. Love. Amazing. And he does the the, the fake Hiles with his oh. arm because he's like this crazy doctor guy. And brilliant lines like, "There, you can't fight in here. This is the war room." Like, like stuff like that. It's just like brilliantly self contradictory and satire. It's. Oh, Good. Anyways, that's my number three. Mr. President, we're talking 10 million, 20 million casualties tops. Anyways, (laughs) I believe it's Ross's. Ross's Yeah, 
Um, my number oh, we skipped Ross somehow. Because well, Ben I had, and I both I had the have same number three. Rolling back we com- combined Ross. the discussions instead of departing. Nice. Um, my number three mm-hmm. is your number three. Yeah. So this is interesting. We have a uh, we have two of the same number threes. My number three is Magnolia. Um, Magnolia is another movie from my uh, elder adolescent years, uh, seventeen or sixteen, when I saw that film. And it was the first time I saw a film and I actually thought to myself, this doesn't need to be inside the box to be brilliant. It doesn't need to have the ending I expect. It doesn't need to have uh, a rising sense of action or a climax, a denouement that I expect. And it didn't. And it still stood, stayed with me. It blew me away. The performances, as Brady has mentioned before, as Rob mentioned in terms of his b- being on his list, the cast is overwhelming. Jason Robards, who was, God rest his soul, his last film was this film, and he passed away a couple months after it came out. But, or and, what was amazing about it was that there is a segment in this movie where he gives a long monologue about time and life and what it means to him. And that was supposedly so moving when they shot it that the director actually cried. What they did when they went to the editing room floor is they used it as an homage to all the other characters in the film. And they cut his dialogue in with other people and what they were doing in their lives. So you don't get to see him deliver this incredible monologue at the end of the movie. It's this old man who hasn't seen his son in years and he's he's about to go. But the movie is great. It deals with Hollywood. It deals with, with, with iconography and uh, false idols and... Uh, Love and loneliness in Los Angeles, and it's a kick-ass movie. I love yeah. it. I, I mean, mean I, yeah. I, I, I haven't... I, I saw Magnolia once around the time it came out, and in all honesty, it didn't have much of an impact on me, and I pretty much forgot about it. And my only lasting memory of it is the fact that Tom Cruise had a very good performance, and it rained frogs. So I should probably watch it again. Yeah, it. revisit it. Okay. P.T. Anderson is like one for the ages. A- any director whose worst film is Punch Drunk Love, keep wow. a fucking eye. Which on. I l- I well, like that movie a lot. I like Punch. It's a Punch great Drunk movie. Love. Yeah, it's an awesome movie. Yeah, it and is. it's his weakest film. I think. It's Adam Sandler and his absolute best. What were you gonna say? Bye. Number two. Number two. Oh yeah, no, no, I, I said it all. Like you know, P.T. Anderson is. Like I, I'm glad he gets the Kubrick comparisons because shit. he's that for his, our generation. I think. That's great. Mine is Spy. Um, Number two. Spy. Kino. Spy. Spy Kino. Dos. Spy Kino film. Two. That is good. Yeah. Okay. Is Lola Rent. Nice. Oh wow, you rate them higher nice. than me. Very nice. Yeah. No. So good. Uh, fucking one of the best movies ever. Lo- run them over. Run. Uh, is an amazing movie, highly underrated. Mm. Um, Agreed. Nobody really quite understands this film because it, it kind of transcends normal genres. It transcends uh, normal filmmaking style in general. And I, I think it just kind of, like, it its appeal is only going to snowball into a greater and greater love. And um, later films will draw from it intensely. And it'll be heralded as uh, basically a creator of new cinema, uh, you know, uh, cinematographic. Cinematography? Techniques. Cinematographic techniques. Sorry, that's a mouthful. 
Wunderbar, das ist, uh, das ist echt das awesome, ist so schön. Alright, well, here we go. Brady, your number two. Uh, my number two, I don't know if any of you guys have seen this. I saw this recently, and it's like uh, one of the most remarkable and like singularly visionary movies I've ever seen. It's uh, Jack Tati's, I think, 1967 film, Playtime. Uh, you guys saw Triplets of Belleville? Yeah, not quite. Gr great movie. No fucking idea what you're talking about. So, <laughs> essentially, like, I don't even know how to begin describing <laughs> this movie, but it takes place over the course of a day and then into the next morning in Paris. Mm. And so our characters are basically some tourists who arrive from America, and then our main protagonist, if there is one, because this is a film that's like a Bruegel painting where there's just tons of people. Like, it's a movie about pulling back and just seeing tons of people interacting in an environment, and it's kind of about how we interact with kind of a, a, technolo a technological, modernized society. And so there's this kind of bumbling old man stumbling through this environment. So he, he goes through the airport customs, he goes to a tech show, and eventually the big centerpiece is just this night at a, a dinner, supper, dance club. And it's really hard to explain without seeing it, but it's kind of just watching all these people at once interacting and clumsily fumbling and being confused by technology and modern <laughs> environment. But uh, without giving anything away, I think it also says while being really entertaining, says this positive thing of, you know, you have movies like The Social Network that talk about technology as kind of dehumanizing us. This is a movie that I think says that in spite of technology being ridiculous, humanity is too clumsy and weird and human at the end of the day to be constrained by it. Like, put in our technological boxes, we'll break the shit. We'll, we'll fumble around and just cause gears to go spinning off haywire. And it's just some of the most brilliantly directed physical comedy you'll ever see. Sounds great. So, yeah, I, I recommend this film yeah. very, very highly. Um, wow. I'm convinced I should watch it then. Yeah, I'm enrolled. My second number dose, number two, is one that everybody has already talked about, which is Dr. Strangelove. Um, it is timeless. It's the beginning of the um, awareness in our in our culture of you know, an absurd version of truisms on what our government looks, smells, feels, and tastes like uh, when they're not up in front of a podium and what they do to get money and get power and put themselves in situations. But it's all done hysterically, hysterically well, as Ben pointed out by Peter Sellers, uh, George C. Scott, Brady was talking about him earlier, and uh, everybody in the movie is great the acting is superb there's not a single shot in that movie that doesn't belong there and and that's hard to say about most movies i mean it's not it's got to be in my in my top you know 20 15 of all time it's just incredible um and all that aside i almost pissed my pants the first time i saw it so we'll leave, it's we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there that was an almost yeah, it wasn't almost. It was like, guys, I need the bathroom. No, seriously, get out of the way. I'm going to use the bathroom. This is amazing. And they had to pause it and rewind it for me, and it was it was wonderful. I was with a bunch of friends when we saw it for the first time, and it was great, great film. Yeah. All right, fantastic. Passing off to Ben Stein for number two. So my number two, which I'm actually really surprised that hasn't appeared on anyone's list so far, is... Die Hard. McLean! Love it. Love it so much. Bruce Willis. That's your number two? 
my number fucking two. This is my number two movie. Die Hard is my number two movie because... By the way, I'm Steve, and I think number two is a bit high for that. You're kind of far from your mic, so I'm going to go ahead and ignore that. Um, Steve is always far from his mic. So... I will, I will defend the, the Die Hard as, so you were, as the movie because... You were, you were shocked that it wasn't on any of our lists, man? Because I think it's the greatest action movie of all time. I think it rates above Terminator or Terminator 2 it or does. some of the it other does. action movies. It It's one of those rare movies that... It's got that 80s action charm of like a little bit of the over-the-top, like the guy's going to fly through the window and... And, you know, covered in blood and all that kind of stuff. But it's got an incredibly compelling villain. Uh, Brady, what's the, what's the actor's name? Oh, uh, it's Alan Rickman. Yeah. Alan, One of the Alan, greatest Alan voices. Rickman. Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman is absolutely phenomenal yeah. as a villain. Um, Bruce Willis really defies a lot of the action stereotypes of the day by playing a real, relatable, and flawed character who is just trying to do what he can to make it out of this impossible situation that he's in. It's it's a well-thought-out plot. Um, you know, it's an action movie, so some of the, the, the supporting characters, you know, aren't Oscar winners or anything. But I, I feel like it's got it's got great comedy to it. It's got well-realized characters. He has a very good uh, character development arc, especially in, in, in regards to his relationship with his wife. Um, and coming to terms with the fact that like you know he's this New York cop she her career has taken her to LA to be a, a top executive at this major firm and they're like having a lot of marital strife and they're they're they're, they're quasi pseudo separated as the movie starts and they come to understand a lot about their own egos and their own love for each other and stuff like there is character development in this movie and there's actually like explicit symbolism in in that like at the beginning of the film she is is presented with this gold watch, which signifies her uh, connection and faith and usefulness to the company and how much they value her. And at the end of the film, um, when she's you know being held hostage by Alan Rickman and the you know the finale is going down and she's hanging out the side of the window and Alan Rickman is holding onto her arm. And the only thing that's sort of like saving him from falling down is this gold watch that he's hanging onto on her arm. And Bruce Willis reaches down and helps like release the gold watch, releasing Rickman and the foe and winning the day. And it's this good symbolic moment of like the character development. Anyway, and he surely wins the day. He surely wins the day. And it's an 80s action movie. And it's like, I, I think it's, it's, the, it's where most of the action movie stereotypes have been reinvented and copied from them and none of them do it as well as yeah. Die Hard did. Yeah, no, and, and for what it's trying to do, for being an action movie, it's at the top of its game and it's yeah, my number two movie. Like, if I can chime in, it's also, it's where cheesy, bad action begins and also where it ends because it's so rare to see an action movie that's well done action-wise that's character-driven. Yeah. It's completely character-driven and we like or at least care about Every character, including our villain, it yeah, it it's a great action. Even movie. the villains Maybe like the henchmen, like you like those guys, and you're like, yeah, that guy died, awesome, dude. Yeah. It was the blonde haired dude, and he was standing there in like the elevator, and like and like Bruce Willis ran by and shot him with the machine gun, I'm like oh. And then there's like lots of good um, 
Dude, uh, uh, like comedy Rickman. in it when like you know he killed like Bruce Willis kills the first guy. Mm, and he, he sends him down the elevator to to Rickman and the, all the other terrorists, and he's like, Mr. "Now Potter. I have a machine gun." Ho ho ho! Like it's one of the best like Christmas films of all time too. You know. And Alan Rickman's impression of a wussy American. Oh, that is oh, the best. <laughs> oh, oh, oh God! Don't shoot! Don't shoot! <laughs> I'm, I'm Henry Clay. No, Bill Clay. Bill so, Clay. Bill Clay. Is it time for Bill my number Clay. one? Is that what's going on now? Oh number my God. Yeah, okay, number yeah. one. Number one. Number one, one from Rob. As we are in minute 57. We may all have the same number one. Of Rank It. We might. I think we're, we're three hours. Wait, wait. Where, where are we for the full recording time thus so far that I have to edit down? Three hours and five minutes. Woo! Hell yeah. <laughs> the length of Avatar. Okay. <laughs> Some discussions are worthy of more time. Some discussions, not <laughs> your discussion. <laughs> All right, number one. Only then. my discussion. Only me saying that <laughs> you have been wasting time. My number one is now one of the best films ever made. Mm. Uh, Dr. Strangelove. Oh. Right oh, on, right on, man. Right choice. on. Good choice. Yeah. It is one of the best films it's ever made. It's so good. It no, no, it is. What, so do, what do you have to say? I, that's all I can say. You, come on, it's one of the best films ever made. That's we, we've it. already talked take, about it. You could take we've any actor in that film, regardless of how much um, acting talent they actually possess, was brilliant. Because the direction was amazing. I mean, Slim Pickens was just a character actor who only did, like, side comics. But uh, Slim Pickens' character in that film, uh, Major Khan, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was yeah. uplifted to, like, classic character status. Slim Pickens, not a very good actor. But the direction he was given and the way that it was shot and the way that it was edited and the way that it was put together. The writing, too. Like, elevated that character to people are like, Major Khan is, like, a fucking character. Oh yeah, American Absolutely, cinema. well said. Well stated. But I mean, like, Slim Biggins is not a good actor. <laughs> like he's fine. Like he's he's a good character actor. I can say this now because he's not going to come back at me with his PR person because <laughs> he's dead. But uh, maybe his uh, zombie PR person might come after me. A la uh, Night of Living Dead, George Romero. Um, Exactly. Maybe that might happen. He shows up. Anyway, not a great actor, but performance that has been elevated to like legacy status. Yeah. Why? Because of excellent directing, excellent editing, excellent shooting, and excellent just all around filmmaking. Hey, hey, I can, I can cry. Well said, man. Yeah, well said. Um. Here's my number three. <laughs> um, no, my, my number one, I've already given this a number one previously, and it is currently my favorite movie of all time. Zodiac. <laughs> Zodiac. I love Zodiac, but it wasn't even my favorite in eh. 2007. No, no. I Technically, Cha-chum. film that takes place in a day, and also while we're plugging into the theme, really kind of amplifies the consequences how much can happen in a day that old song of what a difference a day makes mm. i'm going with pulp fiction man a story about two very different people oh shit i didn't even think of that about sam jackson and john travolta both of whom early on the morning of the first day are given a choice to see that like holy shit like a miracle happens and about how they interact with one another how the travolta character is kind of uh, feckless and 
reckless and stupid and kind of thinks with his cock a bit. And so the Jackson so character... So not Zodiac. Yeah. Zodiac doesn't even come into play here. No, no yeah, and it's about Zodiac how the Jackson character the picks the right path and is attuned to his environment. And within the day, the Travolta character dies because he makes the opposite decision. So it's, it's a, a fascinating, entertaining, beautifully written story and consequences and in moral decisions. And yeah, it's, it's my favorite movie of all time. Wow. Um, I am also on the Pulp Fiction bandwagon uh, with number one. Um, it is one of my favorite films ever. And if I had thought of it, it might have been up there. Um, it's it's just beautiful. Everything about it is fantastic. It's it's a revolutionary film when people didn't think that they were ever going to exist anymore. Yeah. At a time when people thought that revolutionary films would never happen ever again, there was this movie that just stood out like a sore thumb. Every frame of it was essentially enrolling America in in the world in an entire new age of actors that most people had never seen before, or they were very, very small actors, with a few exceptions, like Christopher Walken, who's amazing, and um, uh, Bruce Willis, who's amazing as well. Um, Everybody in this film is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody in this film gives 110%, holds nothing back, and it's clear that they trust their leader, and you know it's it's a throwback on the classics, and it has become a bigger classic than most throwbacks will ever be. Um, so, with that said, Pulp Fiction is my number one, just because um, it blew my mind when I saw it, and I I love everything that it stands for and everything that it's about. Like Brady said, second chances, and. Ben and, Stein. And, yeah, I'm, I'll spare everyone the, expen- uh, the suspense. Uh, I also went with Pulp Fiction as my number one because it's just too fucking good. Um, in addition to all the reasons that, that both of you just so eloquently stated, um, I feel like one of, another one of the reasons why this is such a great movie is that each of the actual vignettes, each of the segments, can stand up on their own. And each of the segments on their own deliver some extremely memorable vignettes and bits and imagery. Um, and, you know, Tarantino directs the whole thing flawlessly. But as you guys have said, one of the things that really elevates... Well, the there film, are a few flaws. Well, I, I'm not going to talk about that. Kathy Griffin? No, I just mean that the, the headless body in the trunk is obviously has a head, and there are bullet holes around Samuel Jackson and... Uh, John Travolta, even before they're shot at, and other things as well. But anyway, I'm gonna go I'm gonna forgive all those little tiny Meh. production errors because yeah. it's bullshit. But in addition to like the, the sort of more segmented value that I was just talking about, each of the vignettes when when rolled together, um, as Brady so eloquently put, like they all come to even an even larger meaning meaning than just the individual segments themselves uh, present. And it's uh, it's one of the most memorable and vivid and just fantastic films. I mean, there there's more moments in here where you feel viscerally what's going on. I mean, there's that one segment where Travolta like drops the adrenaline right into Uma Thurman's oh, chest, so like that entire sequence leading that up was to fucking it trippy. Leading up after, it, yeah, trippy. yeah, and then you just go back to hitting the bong, um, like that, like that was a phenomenal movie moment 
Yeah, especially since she was hella bitchy earlier, but then when shit goes down and it's all crazy, she's like, well. See, that's what I love. Travolta witnesses like two miracles and still goes back to work the and next day and, and gets shot. Still doesn't see what's yeah. in front of him. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all I have to say about that. Well said. Uh, I think that's our the end of Rank It. That's it. Yeah, that's it. I like this. We this did is it. our best yet, I think. I we did it. We're finished. I mean, it's super long. Maybe it's just unfair because like, any one director, as good as they are. I'm so proud of ourselves. All right. <laughs> well, uh, we'll be back with uh, the rest of the show in a minute. Rank it, bitch. All right, so here we are back with our Carnivore's Couch and hanging out going, hey, what is Ethan Hawke's character's intent in... Before sunrise, when he gives the change to the poet's hand. Can I interject and, and begin that change. discussion? Yeah. Absolutely. I would like Please. first crack at this. Yeah. Please feel free to shoot me down. All of my opinions are <laughs> potential to be shot down <laughs> and false. Um, anyways. So He's going to be doing this under shotgun sight. I'm very scared of you. Rob has a really you big can, rocket can launcher right hear now. hear the fear in my voice. It's Trembling. Mo- it's mostly of your of your beard, but... Maybe of the the finger. I do have a formidable beard. You've got on you. Whenever I have one beard, <sighs> you up for a beard off? Oh, I, I, my beard can take on your. Hey beard. man, I've only got like eight days on this beard. Touche, senor. Bitch. Anyways, as I was saying, um, so Ethan Hawke, he, you know, they're in the midst of like their first fight, and the the poet jumps out and is like, "You making the the poem to Quick milkshake?" Pause. Blah, 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 blah. I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. All right. Go Ooh, <laughs> I am for real. Why did I coming from this mindset where space. he's having this fight? He's having this fight with Celine, um, and he's like in this kind of like, oh my god, I can't believe this girl. She's crazy kind of opinion. Hmm. And here comes this incredibly like romantic styled poem poet about you know using the word milkshake and he actually did like a really explain good poem. the milkshake significance dude that poem was like fucking i think that gives the like if somebody read that at a poetry night i would just be like i'm Holy actually shit. I, I, I anyway sorry i throw it back to you off. on that one because i'm not exactly sure what the word milkshake with itself means although he does use it to mean like sweetness and it means i drink your milkshake okay, okay now okay. here's no, what one second one second yeah, yeah, I, want, I, want to, I want to finish this just one quick and we can talk about what the milkshake means um besides bringing all the boys to the yard um <laughs> <laughs> but, oh ross is going to next and then, and then anyways so the idea is that he's coming from the cynical place and then there's this poem that's like really powerful and at the moment the poem ends and it's time to you know pay up or shut up if the poem meant anything and contributed anything to his his life or his evening as the the poet had had thrown out um he's almost like an automaton he's under no control of himself because he's overcome by these feelings of this was a a phenomenal poem and it touched on my life right now and it's a genuine experience for me, and I don't know how to deal with that. But in this moment, I can't do anything but give this guy all the change in my pocket because I feel so strongly about this. But in the moments thereafter, when I'm walking away, I'm so unnerved by the idea that I have to make a joke about how he didn't, how he prepared it ahead of time, and blah blah blah. And then as soon as I made the joke, I knew I was an idiot, and I took it back. And then the scene ends. 
So my 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 thesis is that he was under no volitional thought. He was merely reacting on an instinctive emotional level of this was important and I'm going to give you all the money I have because I'm gra- I'm grateful. No, absolutely. That was the point in time where he was entrenched in the moment and he tried to pass it off immediately and realized that he couldn't. To touch on that a little bit further, Brady is going to uh, share with you guys what um, the poet has them do. He's actually sitting by the Danube in a boat and asks them if they are willing to give him change for a poem. And then the poem itself uh, is is of his choice as a poet, but they get to choose what word he puts in the poem. And if they like it, then they can give him any sum of money if they want to. And if not, they don't have to. But Brady's going to explain how that worked. Yeah, so, I mean, on basically why, why I really wanted to talk about this fight scene is I think it's, like, a very powerful moment. And fight even scene? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, like a one the, take, like punches and like just kicks and knees to the groin and blows. Or you wait, you're talking no, no, about verbal, verbal sparring, verbal sparring. It, so it's just thought we needed to clarify that. I, I think we too. have. Um, it, it's a few scenes where those fights can hurt worse than bullets. <laughs> no, I mean, it's poetic, and at the same time, I think it's like very true to life that even in the most well-meaning of relationships. We have moments where all of a sudden our pride, just like an overly heavy cart on a slope, just takes off and like we just can't stop the thing. So for a while, and the palm reader is kind of the catalyst for this, Ethan Hawke completely cannot control the weight of his own cynicism. Like he not only like does he do the thing with the palm reader, but the next scene in the church, he tells a story about his friend, you know, waving money out to a homeless guy and he asks him, well, do you believe in God? And and the homeless man thinks about it, and he's like, well, yes. And he's like, wrong answer. So basically, Hawk is throwing his cynicism in Delpy's face. He can't even help himself. Question. Do you think that's a um, product of the film and the way it was created, or do you think that was just a product of the way it was played? Uh, explain. Was that planned and in the way that the film was written, or was that just something that played out in uh, kind of the back and forth with the two characters? You know, it's pure speculation either which way, but I, I think that was planned. It, it's such a pivotal point in the movie. It's really, really pivotal. Uh, I, I, I agree with Brady. I think I think that that had to be a written moment. That had to be written that. Well, there's no and some agreeing direction. or disagreeing with me because I didn't posit a point. But yes. Well, no, I mean agreeing. I'm agreeing with, with Brady. Brady's answer to that question. <laughs> yes. Correct. Right. That that like that had to be a written moment. But I also give Ethan Hawke a lot of credit as an actor for pulling it off. Anyway, so this is what we're really getting to, though. So that scene is like I think really quietly tense. It still like resonates every time I watch it. It's probably my favorite sequence in the film, just in terms of like writing and acting. Definitely not my favorite. It's too uncomfortable. It, well, that's why it's good. <laughs> um, I like to feel. I like. To, I like the feel-good scenes though, where they're talking. They to get each there. Other oh like, yeah. Oh, they, they get there. They get there in great. the end. Yeah. Well, Rob, yeah. what is your favorite scene? In the hold movie? on. Hold on. Hold on. I retract yeah, yeah, that yeah, question. No, don't. Don't ask him that, please. I'll, I'll remember it in my brain, and then we'll, we'll do it later. Dun, dun. <laughs> um, okay. So essentially, we have a scene where. All of a sudden, this really, you know, we've been swept up in this romance. And all of a sudden, like any romance, there's a point where conflict arises. And that's a point where the romance can either endure or go off the rails. And so they're having this conversation where Delpy finally admits to him, you know, I didn't like how you comported yourself with the fortune teller. And the word that comes up that kind of symbolizes that is she says that 
I've been eating. God, you're impossible. Uh, well, I'm listening to you. I'm just making faces at Ralph okay. for making noise on the mic. I'm sorry, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I apologize. I've been. Brady, oh, no, please. Okay. please Brady, they won't hear it. I'll have to cut it. it out later, and it'll be Tell a pain in the rest in the of your thought. <laughs> okay. Please. So, please, as Brady. It finally, after the church scene, a few scenes after the fortune teller scene, Delpy finally admits to him that he thought she, she thought he was acting immaturely in front of the fortune teller. And one of the things that she says to him is that you were acting like a child whose mother wouldn't buy him a milkshake. You know, you, as Ross already pointed out, you were getting upset that all the attention wasn't on you. You were being vain. And they basically are about to enter into like an honest to God fight when this poet shows up and asks them for a word to write a poem about. And so what they give him is the word that symbolizes their conflict. And for me, it's kind of a moment of this poet sowing flax into gold. He takes the word that represents their conflict, and that poem literally is this moment of grace. Like, I think the poet is just this moment of grace that interrupts a stupid fight. And if you want my opinion on what Hawk's uh, shame is, and, I, and I'd have to go back and look at it to see exactly what his emotion is on his face. And in terms of how he handles the moment when he gives him the change. Yeah, when and, he gives him and, the change. And, and let's be fair about that moment. That is just an actor's choice, so I was playing devil's advocate on that. How he does that is not written how he does that is a choice i have a direct hold, response hold on, hold to on. brady's I, point I, I, when he's finished i actually finished. had a sentence that was so going. okay it, don't talk over me i have a direct response to brady's point when he's finished but now you talk okay if, if anything if hawk has a moment of shame given how humanistic this movie is i like to think it's that he realizes like what a, a gamble he took in doing what he's done over the last few scenes very interesting very good point. That he he really almost jeopardized things on, you know, just basically pridefulness. It's it's both of them being prideful, but it's also important because that's their nature at this time of their lives. One of them more romantic, the other more cynic. And for a few scenes, they really butt their heads, their pure emotional heads against one another to see if the relationship can survive that difference in spiritual opinion. And then it's been pointed out later what winds up happening is they go to a belly dancer and then Ethan Hawke's character knows what to do. He takes the change out of his pocket. He asks her, tip her? She says yes, and he does. When all else fails, ask the girl. That's good. <laughs> a good way to go. That's good life. advice, Ben. <laughs> Going back to my theme of anticipation, I believe that the, the scene that Brady's talking about actually reinforces that theme because, you know, up until that point, they are both anticipating the first conflict because everybody knows that there's a conflict that's going to come in any new relationship regardless of how long that relationship lasts if it lasts five minutes well okay then maybe it ends before we have an argument but if you do a thing like they're doing which is to say get off the train with me and spend time with me all right there's going to be a conflict at this point in time and here's the thing is they both latch onto it it's not just ethan hawk and it's not just her Ethan Hawke right. goes, okay, my cynicism has caused the conflict, but I'd rather the conflict be caused by something that I knew I was going to do anyway as opposed to just some random conflict that I had no control over. And her, her thing is, like, she kind of already knew in the first place that this was the kind of dude that he was. She was more aware of who he was than he was. Right. Well, well said. Well yeah. Said. No, no, you said that wrong. You guys oh. are idiots. <laughs> oh, can I say one more thing? Wait, wait. Oh, yeah. So, in anticipating that and in um, attaching to that moment, they both kind of latch onto it and then, like, 
hold on to it like a, a life raft and don't want to kick off and go to the next buoy. Rob, is it possible that, that both of them maybe know a piece of the other person better than they know themselves? Absolutely, but... Which the poet says. Yeah. Don't you know me by and, now? And yeah. yeah, and that's yeah exactly, and that's what, what the poet says. But I the, like but the thing is that they're, the poet allows them to hang on to that feeling and to be like, I know where our conflicts lie, and if I don't move off from this point, I don't ever have to deal with it. And since this night's going to end anyway, why don't we just stop here? But as we see from subsequent scenes, they eventually do leave that point, and eventually, uh, culminating in the final scene, they throw all caution to the wind and say, no, I do want to see you again. No, I do want to continue this. No, I do want this to go on, despite the conflict that we've had in the past. I mean, I think you're sort of getting to one of the fundamental parts of this movie that I think is really compelling for a lot of people watching. It is requires that... anticipation of future relationships. Okay. That's but anyway, my point. But, but anyway, uh, regardless of that, but not, not, not touching on that in any specific way. Um, but it is sort of this movie where it is a uh, love at first sight sort of movie, but the way that these two particular characters uh, address it and engage with each other, it's all about in, you're right, in anticipation of a long-term relationship eventually disappointing and failing or falling into perpetual argument or, like that German couple that they met at the beginning. Right. Or even yeah. in the future when they, when they realize that they've been playing out this thing, she even says to him at one point in time, like maybe I moved there on purpose because I thought you were cute. The possibility of an unknown relationship. Yeah. yeah, a, yeah. An unknown future and an unknown That's a scene we need moment. to talk about before we, we okay. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Anyway, go, go I think, I think uh, to, 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 to finish my point, there was sort of that, like that interesting position they find themselves in where they're contemplating the the vagueness and uh, uh, f the unknowability of future arguments in future distress and future um, you know sorrow that might become them Absolutely. if they became a couple. But in the face of that, they have this overwhelming sense of you know love and togetherness and and strive for each other and all that kind of stuff. And so it's kind of this like, I mean, on most first, on, on most first dates, like, you know, talk about shit like this, you know, you do <laughs> no. not get this deep Yeah. and your Rob, normal first date. Rob just shot himself um, with the, uh, with the big, uh, if you hadn't seen it, he shot himself with a really, really big rocket launcher. Yeah. He was pointing at Ben earlier. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, like most people on a first date, <laughs> you don't talk about shit this deep. You don't talk about your exes in any detail. You don't talk about your philosophy on aging with your partner. Blah no, blah blah. Then blah. you stay away from that shit. Yeah, exactly. But like in the microcosm of like we have a finite period. Going back to the finite period, my time theme we were talking about. Like they're sort of forced to just like, dude, fuck, fuck all the bullshit. Fuck all the pretension. Fuck all the. Uh, the first date games where you keep it light or, you know, whatever the fuck you're doing. Um, no, let's just ask the tough questions. I mean, uh, to a certain sense, Jesse is the uh, the instigator of this. Mm. And in that scene I was talking about earlier, he's the first one to be like, no, let's just fucking ask direct questions. Like, let me cut to the core of who you are. And even though that game they play in that scene, like they ended in that scene, but the rest of the movie is them 
you know, exploring that. And just to, to continue this point a little bit farther, one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie, which might be my favorite scene, like, period, is towards the end of the movie when they're in the bar and they're making pretend phone calls to their best friends back it's a home. fantastic scene. And they're yeah. like, oh, yeah, I, I'm on my way back, but I met this guy on the train and I got off and, oh, my God, he's so cute. And like, they go on and on about it. And they, they sort of... They get past that that first date bullshit where you're sort of hiding your true feelings and they're just laying it out to each other that like yeah I do like this person and this is my impression of it and this is why I like them and um, I might be losing focus of my ultimate point on this but I think that like yeah I'm just gonna leave it there no I th- who's I, next I really just want to say just you you make you make excellent excellent points that's an amazing scene and if you, people haven't seen this movie they can seek this scene out and if they honestly just watch this scene it will make them want to watch the whole movie it's yeah i agree the, the, yeah. Con- the connection is fantastic i mean the colors in that room and that scene are so warm you feel like you're almost by a fire and and the thing that just just to go start from something that ben said earlier about them jumping off the train something brilliant about this movie is that they're both in a place they've never been before, and there's something about that where they have to jump into the unknown, and the conversation calls to that. And I think that's something else that is not in many romantic movies you'll ever find, but Brady yeah. wanted to say Des- something. Despite how little it seems like we've said, um, we do need to wrap this, because we're knocking on the door an hour and 40. So uh, okay. let's do final points, and then after that we'll decide what we're going to do next week. Brady yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean... With this movie, I feel like I've said my final theme. So if I get to get one last thing in, because what I think is great about this movie is literally every scene, I think, makes its own argument. And it all ties into the whole. Mm-hmm. So I'll just talk about one more. Uh, they basically have a fight walking through kind of an old towny section of the city through old cobblestones. And they're talking about the idea of the conflict between men and women. I miss And your... the idea that women, you know. A woman wouldn't mind destroying a man and kind of this age old conflict. Oh, yeah. And they scene. agree at like the end scene. of it to be like, you know what? This, this is depressing. Like, and, but then Celine says something interesting, which is, or it might be Jesse. One of them says, you know, I, I bet you, you know, men and women have been having this argument for ages. Wait, and leave they're a little bit more of a gap when you say one of them says, so I can insert one of your drops later. <laughs> one of them says, masturbate. Um, <laughs> no, no, you know, it. But it's like you s- with your pinky. I, I was struck. No, I'm stri- Hold on. <laughs> God damn it. I I was stricken by the power of it, which is the idea of this sense of place, like of of these human stories repeating through the generations. So they're walking through this city that's probably as old as medieval times, and Jesse's saying, you know, I bet back in medieval times, women and men were still fighting about the difference between their approaches to love, to life, to to whatever. So yeah, I'd, I just think it's it's a movie that rewards you each and every scene. Rob, please stop filleting your mic. Mm. <laughs> and Brady, that's but it's so fun. Point. Brady, yeah, it's a good point. I'm done. You're smart. No, I'm not. Ross, I love you, Brady. Final final thoughts on this film? Yeah, um, uh, Richard Linklater. It's clear he has studied lots of different things. I wanted to wait. Say do you think anybody ever calls him Dick? By the way, uh, probably Dick Link. Yo, Dick. <laughs> Yo, Dick Link, you're like a sausage link. Yo, later, Dick. Dick later. I know you won't think on me for cutting okay. this film with DRM free stuff. So in it. Right, if we're wrapping up, can I can I give my um, plugs? Wait, wait, oh, Ross wants. No, to say no, something. we do have a break for you to give. Plugs. Oh, I got a break. Okay. Yeah, we've awesome. got tons of breaks. I uh, think. 
Okay. Break. Um, something about the director that just really I thought re- was really moving to me. Um, it's clear that he has an understanding, a, a small understanding of physics at the very least, which means that he does his research, and that that includes everything. His, you know, we we've talked a lot about his writing. Everything we've talked about has really been around his script, and um, and it's 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 power. Um, so he knows words in literature. He knows physics. Um, he knows what it's like being places that are foreign. Um, and, and just like as an artist in general, that's the kind of thing that I always seek out when I want to watch a new movie or read a new book or listen to a new CD. It's the artist that's willing to go out of his way to go invest in something other than the life that he already knows. And then the benefits that are reaped off of that are what I get to watch. And I'm, I clearly got to see that in this movie. And it's clear that he knows music too, because so many of these scenes have music and and so many. It's of all them, Bach, man. Yeah, it's it's beautiful Excellent soundtrack. I it, love the music in this movie. So it's good, great. except for that one thing that I thought was Mahler, but turns out to be Strauss. So. Well, there's also the female singer songwriter that they have the epic eye fuck. Yeah, half of that is um, Dido. You are all wrong. Dido. It's not Dido. There's a Dido song in there. Is there? Actually, you're yeah. right. I might be wrong. I don't know if that's true. Where? So, it's one of the, I looked up the soundtrack. Anyway, oh, back wow. to Roth. I, I just wanted to say, like, it's clearly a cultured man who has traveled, been experienced, has seen a lot, given a lot back to the art, and and, and, and it's it's evident. It's a great... I, I enjoyed it very much. It's a very moving film. Everybody snap your applause. Ben, what are your final thoughts? Um, I, You know, in the end, I think it's just... Um, it's a beautiful picture about romance and love in the healthiest digression possible, which means tackling the thorny issues head on. I mean, these are this is a young couple falling in love in a in the most romantic of ways, yet the entire time they're talking about all the ways in which everything can go to shit. <laughs> and uh, I, I think I think I think it's beautiful. Hmm. If I had to sum up what I think about this film in a word, it would be... Farts? Anticipation. Hmm. Oh, wait, sorry, everybody. Oh, you mean burps? No, no, I meant anticipation. Ah, oh, damn it. Is this, the, really is this the, the beat shift where we go to uh, a break, Rob? Well, not yet. I was finishing my final point. Oh, Rob's going to finish his final point. Pontificate, yeah, bitch. Please. He's you, you guys haven't seen, but he's wearing a leather jacket. Maybe a magnet, like in chains right now. You know, magnet. Magnet PI. Bitch. You're all beautiful people. I love. All right, this. fine. No, nobody is ever gonna let me finish this. They're just gonna talk about Jewish people who live in tents. No, please, please go ahead. We want to hear. Please, I, I'm yearning. I'm yearning for your. Final well, I don't really thought. have anything to say, so I was gonna try and pass it off on you guys, keeping me from saying the thing I didn't know. What but I, I already said what I no, said. No, no. Everyone, be quiet. No. Yes. Anticipation. As in, I am highly anticipating the subsequently filmed movies in this series that I'm going to watch. I'm anticipating Brady's finding one final word. Awesome. I'll probably watch both those movies. I love Brady's analysis. I'd like to hear what Sunset's good. It's actually my favorite. I'm with that. I have to make full disclosure. All right. So we're going to be right back. And when we're right back, we're going to. Have a little discussion about what to do next. Have a little tea party. Wouldn't that be nice, children? So thank you guys for having me on. I had a had a blast. I love talking the movies. But when I'm not talking movies, I am podcasting about. 
baseball. Baseball. Who thought I would talk about baseball? I am I am a huge baseball nerd. I love everything about baseball. I'm a Giants fan, and I do a podcast uh, with my good friend Brock Towler. We are called the Baseball Diaspora. You can find us at www.baseballdiaspora.com. You can email us at thebaseballdiaspora at gmail.com. We talk about baseball and just like the whole league, all the you know the playoffs and offseason transactions and all that good stuff. So um, come listen to us, Baseball Diaspora, D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A. Anyway, uh, let's do... Uh, well, uh, Daddy! What movie are we doing next week? Boot. Actually, Everybody throw doing? out uh, an idea of what to do next week. Raging Bull. Raging Bull. I just watched it about three weeks ago, and it and it was so much better than when I was little because when I was little, I didn't understand it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, then, and then Ben had a, a Scorsese pick as well. I was so disturbed that I was like, I know that's good. I can't. Earlier, yeah, you said. Um, but it's so good. Short, it's so, no. Yeah. Um, and less it? sad than it than it you used to be. You guys were talking about oh, Shutter Island. A lot less sad. Wasn't me. <laughs> yeah, because it was very sad. No, no we were talking about Shutter Island, but you said now. you were talking about a Scorsese pick earlier. What was I talking about? Uh, you were talking about a good Scorsese flick from like '83 or something like that. I have no fucking idea what you're talking about. Shit. Well, was there a bad trash? Oh no! A- after that? hours. That was just something that fit with our. Oh, after list. hours. That's what it was. Okay. Yeah, Ben mentioned after hours, but that maybe he's not suggesting that. I have no idea what you're talking okay. about. What we're talking about right now is what to watch next week. Ross su- suggests Raising Bull. Raising Bull. R- yes, Raising Arizona Bull. <laughs> no, Raging <laughs> Bull. There I, sug- I suggest it for one very simple reason, which is that I saw it a long time ago, and re-watching it, Joe Pesci's performance it stands out a lot more. Uh, really, really good performance, and I know everybody jumps on Robert De Niro's bandwagon because he <laughs> delivers a great performance, but Everybody in that movie is really, really good. Brady, what do and you it's nominate? Less, it's less sad mm-hmm. than it Okay, I'm going to go on the fly here. Let's well, see. You know what? I'm going to nominate. Since I gave you guys this warm cup of feel good this week, I'm going to go the opposite direction. I'm going to nominate four months, three weeks, and two days. Romanian film from 2007 about abortion. Oh shit, man! Like, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know of that That's one. Heavy. Okay, I'm gonna go ahead Word. and uh, be Tess's advocate that. and throw Word. the Iron Giant back out there. Ben, your nomination. I'm gonna go with Children of Men, the Alfonso Cuarón. Oh shit! Ooh. He, well uh, I mean, he he has his famous film out this year in Gravity, and uh, I feel Children of Men is a it's just a phenomenal film. There's some powerhouse acting in it. There's some great, phenomenal cinematography, and the other movie is just an all around, yeah, uh, pleasure to watch. Even though it deals in Incredibly dark subject matter. I love it. And from like a sci-fi perspective, like the dystopian future of like no one can procreate anymore. Like I, I, I love it. I, I think it's a really yeah. great film, and I'd love to. And more, more importantly, it's not just that I think it's a good film. It's that I want to hear your thoughts about it. That's right. so sweet. Ten seconds <laughs> in there talking. I love you. And the creative brilliance. Ten, ten seconds of what? Ten seconds of no talking to debilitate. Ten, nine. Here, five seconds. Eight. Debilitate? Seven. Debilitate? No, not debilitate. Deliberate. Deliberate. There you go. It's like an anagram of the other one. Uh, ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, ten. four, three, two, one. Now somebody call a vote for one of those films. Children of Men. Okay. 
Ben calls the vote for children and men. I don't know if I'm going to be on next week, so. If you agree, really say aye. If you disagree, say nay. Well, how many votes do we have? There's four of us. I mean, I only get to vote for one. Yes. No, okay. The hosts get two we, votes. No, each. the vote is for aye or nay towards children and men. But if I say aye, I can't vote for anything else. No, you can't. Oh, I can? Yeah. This is confusing. All right, aye. How, how does this process one, work? One, two, three. Aye. Oh. What? I he already said aye. 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 We're winning on Ross. I'm confused. How aye or nay towards children and men. Where is this? How does this work? I don't know. I'm I confused. don't know either. You're making it up. Just iron a towards children of men. It's a good movie. It's a tornado of questions coming at you, swirling, swirling, yeah, swirling. I don't really know what the question is. Mixing your brain. Which, which, should we out. watch? I should we watch children of men next week? Iron nay. 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 Okay. One, two, three. Eyes. One nay. And then, are there any other votes? Abstain. Ross? Would you like a vote? Would you like to vote something other than Children of Men? Um, yeah, okay. Uh, I thought Ross the, said Raging Bull. One of I the four Raging nominated. Bull. I said Raging Bull. Yeah, but there were three other ones nominated, which you can all vote for if you want I to. Like, I like The Iron Giant. I like Raging Bull. I haven't seen the one Brady's talking about. They're Do you all... want to call a vote for one of them? Um, I d- don't want to be a bastard um, uh, and do that, so I don't want to really. I, I can say if any people want to watch Raging I'll Bull. I'll call a vote for Iron Giant. Okay. Aye. Brady says aye. Nay. Nay. Abstain. Abstain. <laughs> aye. Okay, so we have two winners. <laughs> what, what about... I don't get the system. He's, the I'm making the system up as we go along. Okay, so now we need to vote between... What is this, Romania? Brady, do you want to call a vote for anything? Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll, children I'll call a vote for four months, two weeks, two days, just two to see months. how it does. All right. Four months, two weeks, three days, next two week. Two weeks, two days. I Nay. object to this entire classification aye. system. Oh my god. I abstain. Uh, then I'll I, say I. I am I am not a host. Okay, that's one I, one nay, and No, he abstain. said I. Abstain. Alright, that's a tie. So we have two winners so far. Anybody else want to call vote for anything else? Uh sure. Let's do Raging Bull, because this is fun and I'm yeah. calling vote for a Raging Bull. Brady. I <laughs> I <laughs> My vote is meaningless. <laughs> I vote three. I I I. I'm a, I'm a Roman. I can vote three times for I. Nay. Okay, so we have three winners. <laughs> Wait, who lost? So now Nobody. everyone needs to pick one of the three winners. <laughs> I kind of feel like this should be like an off-air discussion of like what the yeah, fuck this we're going to do next. Can, can, I, I'm just making this up as I go along now. This isn't going to be on the podcast, I, right? I, Maybe. I don't I, know. It depends I, on how I feel about it. Oh, I, wow. I, I get final I, cut. I, 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 so let me be honest. Children of Men is a great film. I bought it last week. I love the film. It's fantastic. You're making the case for children and men. I, I'm just gonna say that the, the long 15 minute shot in He's the war zone. It up before he knocks it down. Yeah. Okay, the, the, anybody want to make a case for Raging Bull? Uh, I'll also make a case for Raging Bull. It's <laughs> got the it's got <laughs> the most it's got the most Bowl, it's got the most revolutionary anybody acting performance in the history of film. How about that? Tess has brought it up numerous times. It's been on the docket for a while. Seniority. All right. Now everybody vote for one of those three films. Oh, so my the abortion. No one likes abortion now. Uh, no, now I, I, I think you got that you one. In. I think Iron Giant didn't get in, and that did get in. Okay, so either the abortion film that Brady was talking about, like four months, three weeks, or abortion two days. is an unpleasant um, topic. And then, or um, <laughs> Raging it's Bull. It's uncomfortable, right? right? So everybody vote for one. Brady, what do you vote? Abortions for all. The Bull movie with Ragings. <laughs> American flags for some. <laughs> wait, wait, no. Abortions for some. Miniature American flags for others. Yay! Yay! Yay. 
Uh, no, I'm, I'm going to vote for the, the men, the children. Of children of men. I'm also going to vote for children of men. Children of men wins it. All right. I was All right. happy to see it. Cool. It's a great I film. Think, I think that was a fair enough voting system. Yeah, it's a great movie. And I'm I just bought it. Sure what and I've been waiting to watch it. Uh, well, we each like decided whether or not what somebody wanted to prop up one thing. And then everybody voted. And if it won, they got in the running. And then after that, everybody had to pick one from the running. I'm okay being confused. I All just right. would like to posit questions that further confuse other people. Well, now oh, okay. whoever's listening has seen the sausage-like political machinations of how we pick these movies. It's yeah. awful. I've been sitting here Lights. with my sausage out this entire time, so that kind of influences everybody else's feelings on the, the matter. I am proud of the foolproof nature in which we have arrived at our decision. So I know that we've been talking a lot about... Uh, you, you guys keep hearing me say this word choices, beat shifts today. Um, that is, um, reference that's, those are just acting words and I throw them around sometimes, but I am myself a theater performer. I am going to be performing at the village theater in this town called Danville in Northern California. It's about 20 miles, uh, Southeast of Berkeley. And we are putting on a play called the matchmaker by Thornton Wilder. It's a classic. It's a four act farce. And it's going to be fantastic. I'm really excited for it. Our director is Eric Fraser Hayes. And it goes up in January and runs through mid-February. And I uh, hope you guys can make it out. It's going to be fantastic. And we're really excited to do it. We're really grateful. It's being run through the Role Players Ensemble, who are the actors that work at the Eugene O'Neill Dow House. So uh, come and see it. It's going to be great. Carnivorous couch, shit happens once a week It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak Carnivorous couch With Brady and Rob I didn't get to masturbate today, Rob.